0: 11.55. Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before 12. Just to keep us warm. In five minutes, it'll be the 21st of April. 100 years ago on the 21st of April. Out in the waters around Spivey Point, a small clipper ship drew toward land. Suddenly, out of the night, the fog rolled in. For a moment, they could see nothing, not a foot ahead of them. And then they saw a light. By God, it was a fire burning on the shore strong enough to penetrate the swirling mist. They steered a course toward the light, but it was a campfire like this one. The ship crashed against the rocks. The hull sheared in two, the mast snapped like a twig, and the wreckage sank with all the men aboard. Bottom of the sea lay the Elizabeth Dane with her crew, their lungs filled with salt water, their eyes open and staring into the darkness. And above, as suddenly as it had come, the fog lifted, receded back across the ocean, and never came again. But it is told by the fishermen and their fathers and grandfathers, that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea, out in the water by Spivey Point, will rise up and search for the campfire that led them to their dark and icy death. 12 o'clock, the 21st of April.
1: Welcome to the first time podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to the first time podcast, let me explain. It's really, really simple. Either me or the guest are experiencing something for the very first time, and we're going to talk about it. Now, this is no surprise to anyone who's ever listened to the show before, but today's topic is a movie. Surprise, surprise. And Today's movie is one that I am a huge fan of and my guest is experiencing for the first time. And my guest today is one half of the Movie Defenders podcast on the PFPN. Welcome to the show, Scott Alden.
2: Hey, Dad, how are you? Thanks for having me, man.
1: It's so good to have you. We've been talking about doing a show, went back and forth a few times. Um, I'm a fan of your show. And uh, I had your co-host Donald on quite a while ago to do Xanadu, and um, (laughs) that was a blast. And uh, this movie could not be any more opposite, I would say, than Xanadu, but another classic that I truly love.
2: Yeah, he's uh, my partner. Donald is more into the musicals and I'm more into the horror. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's I grew up with him. So I remember the Xanadu phase. So what listening to you relive it with him was uh, was a treat.
1: Yeah, I was happy to have him on and um, I I just was like I said, in love with that one. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. But if you haven't listened to that one, you don't really know what the movie Defenders are. So Scott, could you explain to my listeners uh, what the movie Defenders is and um, just a little bit about your show?
2: Sure. So um, we're going on four years now, which is crazy to say, and we're going to do our 100th episode this year, which is crazier to say. Um, It started as something that I figured would just peter out um after a few episodes and we'd try nobody would listen and and we'd go about our merry way but it it spawned as the the genesis of the show was Donald and I love movies we grew up with movies we went to the theater all the time we talk movies I mean nerdy type kind of of like like you like this right and Mm -hmm. we got real frustrated with other movie podcasts because and and not all the ones like I can't really think of examples on the PFPN that do this, but a lot of them I would I would search for a movie I loved and I'd listen and they would do one of two things. They'd either spend the entire time ripping it uh, just to be cool or act like they could have written something better or they could have done it better. The 2020 hindsight thing or they would claim they loved it, spend an hour talking about it and 40 minutes joking about all the stuff they hated about it. And I thought we just kind of figured there's got to be a place for people to just love movies and celebrate them and not harp on the negative stuff about them. And so we started with probably the most panned movie series that exists. And that was the Star Wars prequels. And we just talked. Oh, look, I, I, we could have sat there for an hour and griped about Jar Jar.
0: And we do <laughs> tend
2: to lend into popular movies. Um and and popular blockbusters, things like that. Um, and and we could do that. But everyone's done that. But what about the stuff that was pretty awesome? Or what about the stuff people get wrong? They think it's all CGI. No, there was way more model work done than anybody knows. So we do that. Or if um, there is a movie that one of us doesn't really particularly like and, and an example for me, I, I did not care for Captain Marvel. Uh, I thought she was a poorly written character. I thought Marvel was trying to do some things and I don't think they pulled it off. But in a two and a half hour show, I talked for two hours about the stuff I loved about it because I don't have to sit there and rip the whole thing. So it's a positive it's a positive movie review podcast. And honestly, if if Donald and I watch a movie and we both just hated it, we're not going to review it. There's a there's plenty out there if you want to listen to that. So if you if you love stuff or you're like, man, I like that movie. Why is everyone ripping on that movie? Then our show is probably probably for you.
1: Well, that's what I really do like about it, because I mean, from time to time, I am I I will admit I am um, a pessimistic person at times, but I get plenty of that from other podcasts. So it's nice and refreshing when I see something, I know I'm going to not get the that negative vibe. Like I've listened to um, How Did This Get Made? And I know there's a lot of huge fans of that show, and I'll probably get some some hate tweets or something from saying this, but. I've tried, I've tried listening to that show and it's the exact opposite of you guys. It's like, I mean, in some of it's not even like in good humor, it's just mean spirited and I just don't dig it. I I understand it has an audience, but it's, I'm not that audience. So, uh, I, I, I do appreciate that you guys put a positive twist on it and, you know, try to
2: find the good in, in films. You know, and there's another thing, there's a, there's a reason For every, for the reason the credits at the end of a movie last for eight minutes is because that's how many people are involved in every frame of that film. And we've been lucky enough to develop contacts and friends at places like Industrial Light and Magic and Lucasfilm and Lucasfilm Animation. And when they tell you, like when someone says, I don't know, the new uh, Terminator Dark Fate movie, oh, I hated this thing, do you, to just listen to them talk about the meticulous, work that went into getting that single frame of film up there. And there's also a written reason everything's on screen. The director and writer thought about this longer than the audience did, I assure you. And there's a reason for it. You may disagree with the reason. You may not like the reason. You may not like the finished product, but they didn't just lob things at the screen. And we try to discuss that like. Uh, You know, at the end of BVS, everyone makes fun of the Martha moment. Why did you say that name? There's a reason for it, and I won't bore you, but there is a real story written reason why that moment's there. And that's what we also try to unearth is the why. Why is this here? Because there are reasons.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you guys go deep, deep into it and you guys have some fantastic (laughs) guests, but like. I mean, you you go at least, it seems like usually at least twice as long as the movie at times. I mean, you can't go twice as long as, um, the Snyder cut. Cause that would just be a full day of podcasting. But, uh, you know, I, I just recently listened to your idiocracy episode cause I love that movie. And, uh, it was just, you know, I I laughed along with you guys because it's, it's so (laughs) such a funny and it's more relevant now than it was when it came out. And sadly, uh, yeah, but you know, it's, it's a great listen. And like I said, uh, we have so many shows that I love on the PFPN um, and it's, it's just a cool big podcast family. I, I know the guys were guests were guests on your show for um, the it episode and I couldn't make it, I forget because of scheduling or something. Yeah. And um, I'm, You know, I I would like to come back on sometime, but I was sort of in retrospect, glad I didn't just because I was not a huge fan of that. And I I'm like, I would have a hard time not complaining about the movie. I I wasn't a huge fan. So it's I sort of have the thing, too, where it's like, if I don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. (laughs) Um, So but but I always remind people, too, that every movie is somebody's favorite movie. So, you know, keep that in mind when you're bashing something and and keep in mind that the people that made it put all their, you know, heart and soul into something. And it's just incredible that it got completed. Like I run, I I run a short film festival, you know, all independent short films from all across the world from one minute up to 40 minutes. And um, sometimes I'll have filmmakers approach us like at the after parties or between movies and stuff. And they're like, you know. I can't believe you played my movie next to this other one. That was so good. Like I'm, I'm not deserving or why did you pick mine or whatever? And I'm like, I bet you, if you went and talked to that director, they would think the same thing about your film. Like everybody here. It's cool. It's like a big family. Cause everybody sort of, you have to understand like what goes, everybody there understands what goes into making a movie and how hard it is. And just getting to the finish line is an accomplishment of its own. So um, oh, yeah. I, minor
2: I, minor miracles.
1: <laughs> right. right. So I just think it's it's great that you guys celebrate film because that's what we should be doing. There's so many, uh, you go on YouTube and you see trailer reactions or movie reactions right away. People want to be the first person to get on YouTube and record a negative video about a movie and it's just a bummer. And luckily that there's like a sea of that stuff. So it's like you can't even find, you know, all a lot of that stuff just gets ignored. But um when you have, fanboys who are, you know, trying to review bomb Godzilla vs. Kong uh, because they're mad at Warner Brothers or, you know, it's just a yep. lot of the film fandom is so toxic. And yeah,
2: yeah. And we do have a long show and that's fair. I, I'd say usually, though, we do two things. One, we do other segments. So we we have other segments of the show. By the time we get around to reviewing the movie, it's usually halfway through the show and the review itself is usually about half. And we do put timestamps and chapter headings all throughout it so if you're not into like if you like a podcast that's long form you'll dig it and a lot of people tell us that they get through their work shift with us but if you don't and you don't have time for all that you can totally skip around and you can completely just jump right to the review and and we we play scenes and so it is long and you'll learn in a minute i talk a lot so that's the way it goes but we let you skip (laughs) well
1: that's that's good that you talk a lot because that's what a podcast is for um but Like this podcast sort of celebrates the idea that we should stop shaming people for not seeing something. Um, So many times in in the film uh, circles, people are embarrassed to tell someone they haven't seen something uh, because of the reaction they're going to get. When you tell someone you haven't seen a Star Wars movie or something, you've never seen any Star Wars. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then those people are either intimidated and don't want to, or they feel shamed. So next time they're going to lie about it and say... Um, it's been a while since I've seen them or I've seen, I've, I think I've seen parts of it, but I've never seen the whole thing or, you know, they, they dance around it. So they don't appear to be like complete, you know, uh, complete noobs or something. But it's to me, I, I love it when I find someone who hasn't seen um, a film I love, because that means I get to show it to them and experience it. And then I thought, what if I did that? And I recorded with that person to hear the reaction, because one of my favorite things is introducing films to people and, uh, you know, sometimes it's hit or miss, but usually it's like, if it's something I truly love, it's great to hear their positive reaction. If not, that's okay too, because everybody has different tastes, but I just like to hear what people think about films.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I did. I really was excited when you put your show up. Um, cause I love the, uh, I love the entire premise. You're, you're not wrong. And goodness knows I've got a lot of stuff that I, I w- <laughs> wish I would have seen it for some reason, never did.
1: Well, I was, I was really stoked um, when I sent you my letterbox list and there were a couple of films on my movies I love that um, I wanted to talk about that you hadn't seen because it's been quite a while for me. I've been uh, a lot of my guests like to pick shows or shows and, and movies and throw them at me, and which is great, too. I, I'm experiencing all kinds of new stuff, uh, checking stuff off the list. But it's been quite a while since I've been able to introduce somebody to a movie. So when you message me about a John Carpenter film, and not only one, but two, and I had to <laughs> narrow it down, it was a little almost overwhelming. I was like, man, this is a big decision. But um, the date sort of uh, helped me out because we're right around the day that this movie takes place. And um, so tonight's topic, no surprise, is John Carpenter's The Fog.
3: John Carpenter's The Fog. This is K.A.B. Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and 1, something unknown came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. Oh, Jesus. (coughs) One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. Who's there? <laughs> The fog. Antonio Bay has a curse on it. we all cursed. there's no water getting here, but something off a cold pin.
1: I think I'll go to Vancouver now. Where's the fog now? Well, it should be right outside my door now.
4: Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door! Stop.
3: Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog. From the Fog. From the creator of Halloween, the ultimate experience in terror and suspense. John Carpenter's The Fog, starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Houseman, Janet Lee as Kathy Williams, and Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. The fog what you can't see won't hurt you it will kill you between midnight and one it will find you.
1: Okay if you didn't hear them say it 400 times in the trailer we're talking about John Carpenter's The Fog is released February 8th 1980 written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill directed by John Carpenter. Um, The director of photography was Dean Cundy and score composed and performed by John Carpenter. Um, This one has a... Great cast of returning actors that end up being in tons of Carpenter stuff. He sort of is one of those directors that reuses a lot of cast. It has uh, Adrienne Barbeau, as you heard, as Stevie Wayne. She was in, She's known for Creepshow, and she was also in Escape from New York and was married to John Carpenter. Right. Um, we have Jamie Lee Curtis, who every, who got her start uh, through John Carpenter's Halloween as Elizabeth Sully. Um, we have Janet Lee, her mother, as Kathy Williams, who everybody knows as uh, from Psycho, from Hitchcock Psycho. We have John Houseman, who they mention strangely in the trailer, who has three minutes of screen time as uh, Mr. Machin, the old man who's telling the campfire story uh, that we heard at the beginning of this episode. We have Tom Atkins, um, without a mustache, so that's sort of weird, as Nick Castle, who was right. in Halloween 3 and um, Night of the Creeps. Two horror movies he was known for. Um, yep. Charles Cyphers as Dan O'Bannon. He is a weatherman um who was also in um Assault on Pre 13, Halloween, and Halloween 2. Uh and, and this this cast list gets really confusing because John Carpenter named all the characters after real people who are involved with this films. So um pardon me if I if I mess any <laughs> of these up because That's it, right. it, it's so confusing. Tom Atkins is Nick Castle. Nick Castle is the guy who played Michael Myers and Halloween. So, anyways, um, Nancy Loomis, not to be confused with Doctor Loomis, as Sandy Fatal, who plays Janet Lee's assistant in this, and she was in Halloween, Halloween three, Assault on Precinct thirteen. Um, she only has nine acting credits to her uh, name, and five of them were John Carpenter films. Then we have Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. Um, he's the uh, yeah father who's in this movie. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. Then we <laughs> have a couple more names. Um, George Buckflower. He's sort of a character actor that's well known as Tommy Wallace, which another name that's confusing because Tommy Wallace is the set director of the or the production designer of this movie. Um, also the director of Halloween Three. and uh, he's the captain of the ship that gets attacked first in this movie. And then, in a very small cameo right at the beginning of the movie, we actually have John Carpenter. Um, he's playing like right. a, an employee to Father Malone, like an assistant at the church. So, um, what a cast. It's like a huge ensemble cast for such what seems to me is a small movie. Like this movie was um the follow up to Halloween. It has seventy four percent fresh. Uh, rating on Rotten, Tomato- Rotten Tomatoes. I watched a Siskel and Ebert review earlier of this film. They were not, oh, did you? not fans of it. Um, right, <laughs> they, got it. they they loved Halloween, and they felt like this was just another attempt, a poor attempt at that. Um, so I'm going to shut up for a few <laughs> seconds. I just want to hear um, initial thought right out the gate. Uh, was this a yay or nay for you?
2: No, it's a, it was a big yay. So I'm a giant Carpenter fan. Um, and for some reason, two big films of his slipped through cracks. And I, there's really no reason why, um, this was one of them. The other was big trouble in little China that Donald remedied, uh, on a, uh, on a, on another show on, on ours, uh, which maybe I can talk about later, but thank you, Donald. Yeah. Right. No, I know. And it's, I'll, I'll talk about that later. We've actually got a thing we do, but I, this one was, I mean, I put the thing in a top five horror movies I've ever seen in my life. And I own, I own two copies and I, I, I have watched that man. And I think the 2011 prequel is wildly underrated. Um, they explained everything that happened, you know, to the other camp. But anyway, this one, I'm really glad this was one of those movies that I always saw five to ten minutes of out of context, not understanding what's going on on Halloween. You'd get back with your candy and scary movies are on every channel and you'd flip by it. And I, I don't like to start movies I've never seen in the middle because I understand And with movies like that in Big Trouble, you don't know what the heck's going on if you start right, in the middle yeah. of that thing. So I just never. I never took time to see it, but when, I mean, he had that run of Halloween, this Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble, Prince of Darkness, They Live, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. They're all amazing. I love them all for all different reasons. So this is a yay. I, I was I was pleased I saw it. It's dated, but it's supposed to be dated. You can tell and you can tell it was filmed in 79 and released in 80. You can tell. Um, and there's pieces to that. You can tell, you can tell it was low budget, but that's also what endears me to it. So I liked it. I'm glad I finally got to see it. I'm kind of curious to see the 2005 remake. I've heard it's bad, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't believe critics anyway. So (laughs) you're talking to, so yeah, I was a big yay.
1: I still haven't seen the, the remake. Um, I I've heard bad things too, but it's just a matter of, I don't know. I just haven't really had much interest in it. And I remember distinctly when it was coming out. It was my freshman year of college, and I was excited because they were saying, you know, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill are producers on it, and mm-hmm. you know, and I was very excited. Then Carpenter gave some reviews, and in very typical John Carpenter fashion, he's like, "It's my my favorite gig I've ever had. I sit at home, I put out my palm, they put a check in it, and um, I say thank you. I'd have." little to do with this movie, um, actually nothing to do with this movie. And, uh, I, he, he basically has always stated through his career. Like I, my, my, dream, the whole reason I'm making films is so that I can make a boatload of money, have fun, and then stop working and just play video games and be okay. <laughs> like he's, he's worked his life up to a point so that he wouldn't have to work anymore. And, um, you know, Carpenter's always worn his heart on his sleeve. He's very open about his he's very cynical. But um, his opinions on the reboot sort of turned me off just because he was like, I he, he didn't dig it. But then again, he's very negative about his version of the movie. He doesn't think his his version of the movie is very good.
2: Really? Yeah.
1: He's pretty cynical about this Halloween and Christine. Those are the three I've always thought he's been very negative about.
2: Huh? because I don't have anything to, bad necessarily to say of some of that. I mean, I, I, th-
1: I think it's also a lot of, you know, you, we don't see what's what was the vision in his mind. You know, it's like what he, from his complaints, he's basically said that um, he thought it, he wanted it to be more scary in his mind. He had this vision of making it terrifying. And he thought that the limitations because of the, time and uh just budget and everything um he didn't the fog didn't look like he wanted to the the um the creatures that are behind the fog the the ghosts um pirates were not exactly what he envisioned but you know i i Hmm. think it's pretty effective it's a very simple movie it's probably his most simple movie story-wise but uh It's it's really, really simple. It's basically we get that opening monologue about 100 years ago. A ship was with treasure. Uh, Captain Captain Blake was um, captain of the ship. It was led to the shore by a campfire, um, but it was a trick. It crashed and they looted the money from it and stole it. And so Captain Blake, you know, 100 years later is going to come back to get what was rightfully his. And then we flash forward to, you know, then that was that story is told modern time. Uh, april twenty first, eighteen eighty now it's and this is nineteen eighty april twenty first. And this is something that we talked a little bit about before the show. So uh, maybe we can get into that discussion as far as the dates go because you had a question for me, and what was that question?
2: That question just was, so the the fog appears twice, not once. it appears twice. Oh, correct. And the boat, the boat appears twice. And the first time it's out at sea, now it doesn't really talk about how far out to sea that it is, but it's obviously not, made land yet and then the next morning they find obviously they they find do do you want me to skip ahead too far oh we're um, fine we're, we're okay.
1: absolutely fine there's no cool. um yeah we're not gonna go beat by beat through this one so feel free Cool.
2: so when they find the wreckage or they find what's left of the the ship and and they're trying to figure out what happened um it's the next day it's the next morning and then the fog really rolls in so where i was confused um. And wanted to know from you or if you'd figured out was Fog Day because the uh, the DJ uh, when oh, what's her name, what's her character's name? Uh, it's the DJ. Yeah, si- uh, Stevie. Stevie. When she she says happy, let me be the first to wish everybody happy birthday. And that's because the clock rolled over to midnight to one. So I thought fog day was that very first day it hit the ship out to sea. But then it, the rest of the movie acts as no, no, no. fog days the next day. So I don't know. Set me straight. Or is there really no answer? It, it Sometimes we think about these things too hard.
1: Well, I think there's a couple different answers, because first to me, it, the story he tells is that this uh captain blake ship wrecks at like five past midnight i think is what the the thing is and i think they've said it a million times in that trailer right uh uh, (laughs) right after midnight it's so weird that they put an emphasis on this and then there's still some questions because you're not the first person to sort of question this and you and (laughs) I, i i questioned it again after and i was sort of paying attention last night so in my mind i'm thinking okay so it it, it rolls over stevie's talking about you know happy 100th birthday uh you know to our town here's uh antonio bay hundredth anniversary it's 12 past midnight and then we like people's um shit starts going weird people's clocks are cracking um you know her her stuff starts going crazy um Tom Atkins he's driving his car and his window shatter. He at this point he's picked up uh, Jamie Lee Curtis or Kathy Williams or no, no uh, sorry Jamie Lee Curtis uh, Elizabeth he picks her up. I'm going to mess mess that up with uh, Jamie Lee and Janet Lee, but um right. It's everything starts going haywire at 1205 and then, you know, it, it's sort of they kill all the people on that first ship and then, you know, everybody goes to bed, and then it's the next morning, and her son finds this piece of driftwood. So we know it's technically a new day, but it's still April 21st, because, you know, it's just morning now. Right. So when the ship rolls back in the second, technically the second time, it's still before midnight. So technically, it's still April 21st, but we, they never really indicate a they're so they so strongly emphasize the time the first time around and it's sort of weird because it's like if you're emphasizing it so hard only this one small attack happens at that time and then they wait till the next time it gets dark again to attack you think it would all just sort of happen there wouldn't be a day between but i'm guessing they just sort of do that for story because they have to have a give us a little more meat to it because like i said this this As far as Carpenter's films, it's probably the most simple. It's really a really
2: simple ghost story. Um, Sure. And I think that's what I think that's what so I, I get what you're saying. That finally made sense. And I think where I interpreted it was, you're right. What threw me was they focused on midnight to one. So I thought, okay, that's the only hour this thing can show up. And then the next day, when it showed up again, I'm like, "Well, if it's 12 to 1, now it's not that day anymore." And but you've reiterated, like, "No, it's it's before midnight. It's it's any time during that day, but obviously it's going to wait till night." And I, it seemed like the reason it hit that ship first is it was on its way. Mm-hmm. So it hit the ship out to sea first, and then by the next night, it's now it's going to make complete landfall. So it was kind of a progressive thing on the way in. That's so how I.
1: Yeah, saw it. and it's sort of weird just because like i said they they emphasize that time so much and then there's only a, the, the the smallest of the damage they do is at that time like when they come back the next night there's not any you know breaking windows all the the stuff doesn't go crazy like the night before um so i it's it's weird to emphasize but i also was thinking it might have been because um after reading up about this and watching some special features and stuff um they actually added the whole campfire monologue in post like they they oh. uh, reshoots. So Carpenter filmed this whole thing and um, Tommy Lee Wallace edited and he went on vacation. He came back and he's asking them, you know, how's it going, guys? And they're like, uh, I hate to tell you this, but this is not looking very good in post. Like we really need to add some stuff or it's just not what we envision. So. Uh, John watched a rough cut and they did a test screening and it did not do well. So he went back and added that whole opening monologue. They shot that on a soundstage surprisingly. Um, And then they Hmm. went and they add, they they added a bunch of uh, kill scenes. Like they already had some kill scenes, but most of them were off screen and they wanted Mm. a more visceral movie. It didn't have any scares. And what's funny is Carpenter said originally they were aiming for like a P a G or PG on this. And end up getting an R, but to me, it still doesn't feel like an R because there's no. not a lot of swearing. There's almost no blood, um, so I'm not really sure where the R comes from. But
2: I mean, yeah, I don't either. PG, this is PG-13 if made now, easy. right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, I guess, I don't know, the the sex isn't even on screen. It's right. just oh, implied. Yeah, yeah, it's even implied. Yeah, you talk about the simplicity of this film, but honestly, that's what made it. And I even made some notes on this. That's what made it brilliant, because in in 79, when it's filmed fog's something easy you can do. And and not only that, it had never been done. I'm big on show me something I've never seen. And I know we're talking 40 years after it was made more. So we act like we've seen it. But then it's easy to do. It's also inescapable. It's almost like the blob or mm-hmm. um, something that that you no matter what you do, you can't get away from it. I'll, I'll, I've seen 45 minutes of the remake and then I, I ran out of time. But I will tell you, there's a moment where a guy traps himself in a freezer because it's completely airtight okay. and it, it can't get in there. Now he ends up damn near freezing to death because he tried to escape that way. But that made sense. So you can't get away from it it's easy to do it's easy to produce and he said maybe he didn't like the effect but i i mean it 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 still holds up to me i mean i understand if you had cgi you could do it in two seconds and nobody would care but for what he did and he they made it glow which that's a question i had for you if you know Was the glowing because that's what the effect had to look like? They had no choice or was that? No, we wanted to light the fog so you couldn't see what was in it. Or was there any reason behind that beyond just, it looked really awesome.
1: Well, this is another great thing about why I love doing this because even though I've seen this movie a dozen times, I learned so much just in the prep for this episode. Um, Just watching like a making of, I have the the blu-ray and watching some of the features and there's a couple interesting things. Um, they, they lit it to make one, make it appear better on screen. Um, but two, because Carpenter wanted the fog to be its own character, sort of like, mm-hmm. um, Michael Myers, you know, he wanted it to be the villain and they actually got the whole idea for this because he he was dating Deborah Hill, um, before Adrian Barbeau because Carpenter gets around with his, um, co-workers but yeah, they, they were vacationing and they went to Stonehenge and they saw they were standing there and they saw this beautiful fog sort of coming up over the sunset and john asked deborah what do you think's in there and she's like well I, I don't know it's sort of eerie and he's like you know what if that was like a movie like what travels within the fog like as it as it travels over land something's within it and so you know let's make that a movie and um you know, it's the way they shot. It was interesting too. Um, Dean Cundy talked a little bit about it to get the fog around, like when it's around the lighthouse or big buildings, or even like when they show the downtown area, mm-hmm. what they did was they photographed these buildings, um, on their own, without any fog. Then they went back on a like use miniatures and shaped made, built out like miniature versions of these buildings in the shape of them, but they blacked them out completely, and then brought in this fog. They filmed the fog going traveling around those shapes, and then superimposed the two over. So it's like a green, like an old style green screen type thing, where they have basically filmed the fog on like a green screen and put it up, up on top of the photograph of that location so that it would naturally, as a miniatures, it would travel around these physical locations because it's a lot easier than bringing in humongous fog machines.
2: That's awesome. And it makes sense. And it is a character. In fact, I think the the, how it's lit, it made it harder to see the the pirate ghost. I always think of the South Park episode. (laughs) (laughs) Pirate ghost. But no, you couldn't see them really well, which is fine. So again, it's one of those deals where the director said I didn't like it. But the fact that you couldn't see them really well made it scarier. What you yeah. can't see is scarier than what you can see. So, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I agree with that and um he sort of he talks about that too like that when the reshoots they did that scene where you do see one of the pirate's faces and it has like worms coming out of it and he's not mm. he was that that was something they added in because um the test screening people said it wasn't scary and at the time he actually referred to Um, David Cronenberg's scanners he's like that showed everything in bright light so we wanted to have a few scenes like that which is a weird comparison like you get one second of a side of a face with worms and it looks like you know pretty dated and not great but um, to me I agree with you is that you know I didn't need the glowing eyes on Captain Blake I'm not a huge fan of and seeing that face like I just sort of like the shadowy figures I thought that was cooler
2: Yeah. I mean, Spielberg's always mad. The shark work really well, but that made the movie awesome because we never saw the thing until, you know, the last 30 minutes. So it, sometimes it works out for the best. Yeah. Like a happy accident, happy accident. Yeah, no, that makes all sense in the world. I, I think the fog was a character. And I, like I said, if I'm, if you've got the budget you had and the technology at the time, and that's an easy, scary thing. And, And they did, you know, go into the, um, the ship out to sea you, you said it like we always say on our show, there's a reason for everything. And the reason it happened is because there has to be a reason that these characters the next night start getting scared. It's coming back or otherwise they're just going to be like, Oh look, it's foggy. Great. But they need to understand that there's a threat in there before it gets there or they're not going to be scared of it. Right? So it, it completely served a purpose. I loved the fog. I, I loved the idea and the concept. And while you say it's simple, those are sometimes the, I mean, sorry, I mean, Jaws, it's a shark eating people. I don't know right. how much more simple it can be. So simple doesn't mean bad and simplistic. You know, I, I we say that all the time. People are like, oh, it's not a complicated. Does it have to be? If it's executed well, it doesn't need to be at all. Right. It's more of a
1: testament of um, anything to me is like if this is stood the test of time and still – is eerie and rewatchable now with such a, a simple story that tells a lot about the storytelling and the way it was filmed. And, you know, it's just a good movie and a good story. Uh, and basically this uh, father Malone, he's, he's hanging at the church. This rock falls out of the wall. He finds a journal and starts reading about it and finds out that his grandpa was a pretty bad person. His grandpa was the one that actually led captain Blake to the campfire to steal his gold and he's confessed in this journal and so um we sort of jump to the, our other characters and we we learn a little bit about them it, it's interesting following them throughout the day like we have tom atkins playing nick and he's sort of a ladies man he picks up jamie lee curtis uh who's <laughs> elizabeth and it's an interesting jump from uh laurie strode to elizabeth because elizabeth is a little she's like um sort of just uh, a travel, traveling hippie type girl, uh, artist. Um, you know, she just hooks up with Tom Atkins after the first night meeting him, but she's very interested in what he does. And we find out that he's like, he, is he like a sailor too? Or is he like, a, a, does he work at the docks or what's his like?
2: I don't know. In fact, I was going to ask you, it was interesting. You now connected the dots for me because I thought, well, she, and I hooked up with him kind of quick and then what's really interesting is for a quick hitchhiker hookup they sure hold hands and hug a lot the rest yeah. of the movie but you saying oh no she's from there and and they may in in the sequel they may or in the next movie they make a lot a big point about the family names still living in the town that the descendants of the six that started the co- the community those descendants are still there so now it makes more sense that she was returning home and this guy yeah while she doesn't know him he's from the hometown he lives there he works there he's not quite as estranged as it came off i don't know what his job well wait a minute that's not true he talked to he's like
1: type of coast guard type thing or something
2: something he he did mention he knew everything about the boats and and yeah it's something i i know they never say but he alluded enough to it he he's got a yeah i don't know if he's in law enforcement at all but
1: yeah, because they're out in the water and they're looking for that boat. And she's like, is it normally like this? And he says, uh, no, this isn't, you know, this isn't. He common. said he
2: inspected it, didn't he? He yeah. said, I was on here just two days ago. Yeah. And did so he maybe, use the yeah. word inspection. I don't know.
1: I don't know either. But he, he works somehow in boats or, you know, on the docks of some kind. So they they go looking for the boat and they eventually find it. And, he, and it's a big mystery. We know as someone, as the audience who's watched it and it's sort of cool how they do it because they go into the boat and, and all the gauges and glass and stuff are broke and stuff is rusty from salt water, but the the deck and the floors and stuff are dry and um, they don't find any bodies right away. They're just sort of looking around and very confused as to the shape of this boat. And then Um, this is another scene that Carpenter added in reshoots is when, um, Elizabeth's leaning against something and a body falls on her back and she gives a Mm. good Jamie Lee Curtis classic (laughs) scream as this eyeless body falls on her. Um, I was surprised to see that was not included because we get another, you know, fast forward when they're doing an autopsy on this guy, um. I guess it, I guess they could have just fast forwarded to the autopsy and he would be getting inspected like they just. But it, it seems weird to me that that would be something added because what? how else would they have found it? Maybe they had a less um, visceral scare like they just happened to find him on the floor or something. I don't know. But to me, it seemed very much a carpenter moment with the body falling on her and getting the good jump scare out of her.
2: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, if you don't have that scene, and maybe you're right, maybe there was a different version of it, you don't know how. Maybe maybe it just, there is a there is an in-between scene where they're just boating back to shore, and they're looking at the body under the sheet, and they're talking about, oh, that's awful. But it sounds like that was a reshoot as well. Yeah, uh, I would assume so. Or added, because if you don't have that, then you don't know how we got to the autopsy. So it's either a line of dialogue, but again, it's that filmmaking rule show me don't tell me and it's better to show it to you um and and yeah and then obviously you get to the the autopsy which that that moment actually that was the only time i was confused i mean look uh supernatural stuff is supernatural stuff in horror movies you don't have to explain it it doesn't matter like why does the annabelle doll do it because it does you Mm -hmm. don't have to worry about it so um when the glass breaks in his truck when the fog's not really around, like you don't need to worry about it. It doesn't matter. It's telling you that things are starting to go sideways here. But the one that did confuse me is why the body got up and walked for a hot second and then collapsed. Yeah, it was the only part of it I quite didn't. I just didn't like possession wasn't part of the rules, like the rules of the fog. Right. They just I don't know if it broke a rule or just didn't quite explain it. I don't know. Yeah, do you make anything of that? I'm not trying to dig the movie at all. I love no, it. But.
1: No, no, you're you're doing what you do on your show and and just trying to find a reason for their decision, <laughs> and it makes sense because um it, to me most likely after reading or or hearing about what they've done is probably just because um they just needed to add some more scare. so they probably added that body falling in and the autopsy scene instead of just saying off screen, you know, or on sc- just saying it rather than showing it, like, you know, he. He died. Oh, we found one. But it is also sort of weird that they only find one of the three. Also, um, there was three people on that ship that died and they, and they, they left oh. one. You know, it's sort of. I've always questioned that, too.
2: So the reason I just thought of it, I forgot. He writes a three on the floor yes. indicating we got to kill three more. It's like three okay. down, three to go. Right.
1: See, like I, that's I, what he's
2: because six must die. That was part of the thing. OK, so I assume right when the body falls on the floor, they look and it wrote a three on the ground. Mm hmm. Now, I mean, why it got up and walked for a second, I don't know, but that was the purpose of it is to start leaning into that, I, I assume, right?
1: Yeah, well, that. see, I'm I'm now putting some pieces together, too, because that um, the Stevie, the DJ, um, her son, like I mentioned earlier, he finds this piece of driftwood and it says Dane on it and she finds it intriguing, takes it with her um, because People are starting to question what happened the night before. They're all saying, oh, my car alarm went off. My alarm, my um, right. clock on the wall shattered, all this stuff. So people are starting to question it. And Stevie's like, you know, what's going on? So she takes this piece of wood that says Dane on it back to the, uh, which is really cool, the the lighthouse, which is also yeah. the radio station. Really cool uh, idea to, to sort of have that double, you know, location. But she brings it with her while she's listening to um, station bumpers. And it starts inexplicably just leaking water and it changes to um, six must die. The The words on it change from Dane to six must die. And it, right. you know, floods her tape player, and then when she gets back to it and put, it starts on fire, and she puts it out with the uh, fire extinguisher, and it says Dane again. So she doesn't re- even see where it says Six Must Die, but um, right. we know something supernatural is going on with that piece of wood, and and it's interesting because like as audience, we sort of catch what's going on, but the characters in the movie are, are still not putting it quite all together. So um, that's yep. when, yeah, that's when they find the corpse and. When uh, we're that da- now she's found the corpse, people are sort of questioning what the hell is going on in this town. And um, meanwhile, it's, it's interesting because Stevie, um, Adrian Barbeau, is the lead in this movie. But we have three sort of separate stories going on. And uh, I didn't really realize until watching it this time, like Stevie, outside of talking on the phone with the weather guy, um, she has no interaction with like any of these characters, her son and that guy on the phone, but never actually... Um, until the very end never really even has a scene with these people um she's sort of her own thing and i I love that she's like a strong female character lead that's on her own because i know carpenters um you know was a huge um howard hawks fan a huge hitchcock fan and so he always liked having strong female leads and of course it it doesn't hurt when you're married to him to put them in that (laughs) uh lead role but um you know, I I love her character and I I think uh, her storyline to me is the most interesting of the three. It almost, I feel like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins little side love story is just sort of tacked on. It feels like compared to the other two where the the third story is between the mayor who's played by Janet Lee and then her assistant um, Nancy Loomis. And they're sort of leading the story along too, because they're, they're prepping for the hundredth year celebration of antonio bay and so they go visit father malone and he's like you will not believe what i found in the wall and he, he starts right. reading this horrible story out of this diary and I, what i absolutely love i'm a huge uh fan of nancy loomis because in all of the carpenter's movies she's like this um sort of sarcastic funny female and um and this she's sitting here listening to the story and she's like um, so should we still go ahead with this? <laughs> like, and she keeps sort of mouthing off to, um, Kathy, who's the, who's sort of the mayor of, of Antonio Bay. And so she's sort of like a smart ass back and forth, like the mediator between the two. Cause, um, Kathy's like, well, she, she's straight business and she's like, you know, it's a horrible story, but we've got to go on. We can't just like come out and say, you know, well, this whole tradition, our whole town's based on a horrible you know, murder. So, um <laughs> she's like, right. Let's let's just put that back on the wall and move on. And Father Malone is like uh, he feels awful because that was his grandpa and he's his changes his whole outlook on everything. And he's I, I really loved uh how Hal, how Hal Hallbrook in this role. I thought he played it great. Um, very plays it very straight and he's he plays this sort of sobering, like very serious uh Role, yeah, I I just I thought he's he's
2: great. The one piece that I was trying to get a handle on his character because he I don't think he has enough screen time to really be completely fleshed out. But when John Carpenter played the assistant, it was really interesting. I think they were going for, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think they were going for because he said, "Can I get paid, Father?" And he says, "Well, why don't you come in later tomorrow? I don't need you as much." And he's like, "All right," and he leaves. So he he dismissed the guy's question at all. He completely ignored it. He was, I think, if I'm wrong, or if, if I was getting it right, I think they were trying to make him out to be, I, I don't know, not the greatest guy, like not caring about a lot of people around him. Oh, he was drinking. Kinda, yeah. He's drinking. But then when he realized what his family did, okay, now that you know what got real and he's the one who, we get to the end, but he's the one who absolutely, steps up to the plate and's like i'll be the sixth because they killed the three on the boat the weatherman the babysitter so there's one left and he stepped up to just say it's me because this is my my family's fault i own this so that's what i thought they were trying to do i don't know if you agree but i think no, they were I, trying to show an arc a mini arc or i don't
1: know they do yeah it's it yeah it starts off with him sort of being shady a little questionable um yeah, I agree. I th- Like right away when he's he's talking to Carpenter. Yeah, he does that thing where he just totally um, pretends he didn't hear him and, d- and then actually tells him just come in later. Like almost like uh, passive aggressive towards him about you're going to ask me to pay, then I will give you less hours, sort of like I don't need you as bad as you think I do or something. But um, right. Yeah, he doesn't get enough screen time, but uh, this movie is like a slim uh, 90 minutes. And to think they they did reshoots and added stuff. I can't imagine it would have, you know, they almost would have had to for length. This would have been, you know, an hour and 15 minutes. So uh, it's it's pretty fun. I like, you know, their back and forth. I mean, fun's a weird way to describe it, but I just love Nancy Loomis uh, as an actress and Um, i'm probably pretty partial because she was at um jason and mike's event halloween palooza three two three years ago and oh nice uh, yeah and she was there signing autographs and i sat with her for probably an hour and a half and um talked with her about life and we never we barely even touched on on her film work we just talked about um life and and what she's been up to and uh, theater and she's just a very very sweet individual and like I said she only has nine acting credits and five of them were carpenter projects I think um she did she worked into the early 90s and and then just never acted again she's been teaching theater at a university and uh yeah, it became a wow. mom and just a sweet woman. But
2: that's awesome. And, you know, Adrienne Barbeau doesn't get any credit. She she does. She is I mean, she won a Tony for being the original Rizzo on the original first run of Grease on Broadway. She's got chops. But because ever since she posed for the, her version of the Farrah Fawcett poster in the 70s, she became the bombshell mm-hmm. at it, you know, or at least that was the public persona i grew up with whenever somebody said adrian barbeau that adrian barbeau that came with a that came with a, a thing right it's kind of mm-hmm. like saying pamela anderson of the baywatch it just came with it but her acting credits um especially past the past film and into theater. She's got more under her belt than anyone would ever be aware of. And she did, like you said, while she was married to John, she did a few carpenter projects, but she went on to do a lot more. And I don't, I don't think she gets the credit that she deserves either. Um, I did not know until I was prepping for this, that she was the original, the OG first Rizzo and won a tony for it which is crazy to me that's yeah. awesome
1: i had no idea but you look at her and it's like well yeah she has the dark curly <laughs> hair and the pretty face it makes sense and she's sort of a uh she's always played like a a woman you don't want to fuck with in these movies like in his projects he's always cast her as that in creep show she's like that she's always yep. she's never played the damsel in distress and uh that's what i love about the her character in this too like she's She's on this. She's in this lighthouse. She owns the radio station. She works a night shift like 6 p.m. to 1 a.m., I believe. And um, they play mostly instrumental jazz. And what I read was that that was simply for budget, so they didn't have to pay um, licensing for actual music. And then there's there's one bit where she plays the Coupe de Ville's, which is Carpenter's band. Um, so they got <laughs> uh, around with that, but it's sort of funny that it's like all this jazz and then they play like one rock song, but, um, yeah, she, she's sitting know. out at that lighthouse and she's, she's watching the fog roll in and she's calling, uh, Charles Cypher's character and telling him he's, he, they're flirting back and forth. He's like a, a weatherman and she, he can see stuff on the radar. So they're, they're sort of having back and forth. She physically sees things out the window and she's looking for stuff to talk about late night on the radio. And uh, he's just sort of lonely at this this weather station. So they they have this fun chemistry back and forth where they don't, they've never seen each other. They don't actually know each other, but they somehow have this um, unspoken relationship.
2: Yeah. um, What I loved about her in the lighthouse was it was almost the opposite of a It's almost the opposite of a haunted house which was a really cool touch so usually the the trope is you're trapped inside a thing and you can't get out she was trapped outside the thing helpless to get in Mm -hmm. and she was she that's very cool she was isolated which is done in a lot of horror movies you're out on your own you're stuck whatever um but this was done differently and i know that the fog eventually reached that area and she had her own problems going on but um for most of the film She's isolated in a different way that horror movies don't do. It was a feeling of helplessness. But for those that she loved and those that she cared about and the town she loves, it was almost reversed for me. Rather than being stuck in a haunted house, she was outside it trying to get in, look in and help those inside. Does that make any sense?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a really cool way to look at it because she has a bird's eye view of where this fogs going and she has the advantage of being able to speak through the radio. She's I mean, in this small little town, she can reach everybody and anybody and everybody. And there is a scene eventually where she tries to make a phone call and the power lines go down, but she still has the power of radio and um, there's even a scene too where the the power goes out and she she's prepared. She has a backup generator, so right. nothing. You know she's she's so uh, she's prepared for the worst. And um, like you said, she's it's it's really cool. She's got this view and she's sort of warning people. And then you know, at first it's sort of like innocent, you know, oh, the fog's rolling in and they're questioning, well, how's the fog going against the, the wind? Her and the weatherman are having this sort of back and forth um, teasing each other. And then they sort of start getting concerned. What's the deal? They start putting two and two together. Oh, it's the hundredth anniversary. You know, this story, what's going on, things are happening when this fog lifts over it. So then it becomes like, oh, shit, my son's at home with the babysitter and this this fog is going to take him because it's looking to take out people. Um, it's it's a really like you said, a really unique dynamic that sh- usually it's, you know, sh- she's not necessarily trapped till the end. She's actually on the other side telling people that they're going to be trapped. So she's like telling them they're listening to uh, the radio and they're hearing her like, oh, you know, it's it's coming this way so they can turn her truck around and the the scenes where Uh, They're out, they're out driving the fog is really cool. Like, you know, it really makes that fog feel alive.
2: Right. No, absolutely. And that's one reason I like the glowing. I like what they did. Um, That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, And, and you're, you're right. I, I, I was almost hoping the fog never reached her but then when just because i thought this whole take was a little unique and and i liked that but then i realized no it's gonna have to she can't just stay on the mic for for 90 minutes she's gonna have to have something to do and so i was glad eventually she had to like face the threat herself uh because i I get it like i was i was a three quarters of the way through going i hope i hope this is very cool let's lean into this and she did and then the isolation was then reversed. So what was very cool was she went from trapped on the outside, looking in to completely trapped inside the cylinder with no way out. And, uh, that was very cool. Um, I, I dug that entire concept. It kind of flipped, but I, I dug it for sure.
1: Yeah. She, she gets on the radio and basically begs anybody to get to her son, to her house, to, uh, rescue her son. And, uh, Nick, who, who happens to be listening to the radio, um, and, played by Tom Atkins, who's sort of the hero in in this and everything. Um, Just a sort of a badass, uh, masculine dude. He, uh, of course, makes it just in the nick of time. Sorry for the pun. (laughs) And uh, gets him out of there. Unfortunately, Mrs. Corbett's Corbett's does not make it. But um, it's okay because we've only seen her in this one scene. And she was Uh, I know. Uh, not listening, you know, and she's like, "Just go to your room. You're all crazy." But um, she also well, has to hear the ra- the weatherman die, who she also is the same thing. She's warning him, yes. "Don't don't go to the door. Don't go to the door." And he's sort of too macho to, you know, he's almost showing off to her over the phone. Well, I'm gonna, yes. you know, who's there? Whoever is on the other side of that door, not better not be there. Or they're gonna have to deal with me, type of thing. And he pays for it.
2: Yep, and the only other one that was a little which was good. So what that does is it makes the threat very real to her. So they they go from so the two stories the the two outside the two stories dealing with the fog. The Janet Lee one didn't quite deal with the fog, but um um the Nick and and Jamie Lee Curtis's character that, and I I need to get the cast list in front of me, sorry. You're okay. Um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, they have to um, they start figuring out as time goes on that there really is a threat in here. And then it becomes really real uh, when the weatherman dies and she has to listen to it. Um, And again, that starts her feeling of helplessness Um, and she and, and it is interesting. She has a moment on the mic and she's talking to her son and she says, I'm sorry, but I have to stay here like. She had to make a decision. It was interesting because she can get in her car and go and go to her kid. And if she does that, she can't broadcast to the town where the fog is and what's going on and she might save more if she stays where she is. So she's in an absolute dilemma, not under, you know, deciding do I so go save my kid or save more people? What do I do? I don't know. Um, and I liked that. I liked that she was stuck with a choice. Um, she made it pretty quick that she was going to stay, um, which is cool. I did find it funny when the uh pirates start breaking the door down to the little, the kids room uh, that kid did not freak out at all i would have lost <laughs> my absolute n- i would have lost it i would have just gone fucking nuts and dove out the window he just sits there looking at the door like well oh, that's interesting you don't see that every day <laughs> Yeah. Until Nick like, breaks the window, pulls him through. And I know, look, child acting, it is what it is. You get what you got. It's fine, and it was okay. And i maybe he wasn't even reacting to something that was there. They could have cut it different. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I just thought it was fun. I was like, dude, kid, there's a guy with an axe busting down your door. I'm out. I'm yeah, out of there.
1: He actually seemed more scared hearing the story at the beginning of the movie because um, right. he was one of the kids hearing it from at the campfire which bro, that's right. Who's letting their kids like hang out with this old guy at night at midnight, little, you know, nonetheless, right by the, the sea, like listening to horror stories that really happened in the town. Um, he seemed. I mean, yeah, it's a scary story, but th- he should know. Like, <laughs> okay, if somebody just told me that story in the next night, a, a goddamn pirate ghost is knocking through my door, my bedroom door. You're damn right, I would be breaking through the window. Nick wouldn't have to break the window. I'd be out.
2: So I know, right? So yeah. it was just funny. I. It's all good. Sometimes it's an editing thing. Sometimes it's a. You know, you you try three or four takes, and the kid just does what he does, and it's like, well, it's it's fine. It's okay. Like I said, I don't mind if I if I see a see something in a movie. It doesn't ruin a movie for me or anything it's all good it is it was was interesting
1: it is stevie's son and stevie's a badass so i mean maybe he's just like really tough but um stevie's watching this fog sort of roll through and she does the right thing but end up being the not right thing she says you know the only place left you guys have to go is to the old church and um that's where we get Nick, Elizabeth, Andy and uh, Kathy and Sandy, Father Malone, all of them um, together. Finally, like this ensemble cast outside of Adrian Barbeau. Finally, they head to the church to escape the fog. They end up there. And that's where Father Malone sort of tells them, like, here's the deal. My grandpa was an awful person. You probably shouldn't have come here. But right. they, he's like, can you help me break down this wall after the pirates start Busting through the stained glass, which is a really cool scene. Like, that was cool. Yeah, they take over the church, and I just love, you know, just the cinematography of it. Um, the the stained glass getting broken in the the hands with the sort of stuff hanging from them, the gauze and the seaweed and stuff breaking. in. Because they
2: were they were lepers,
1: right? Yeah, which is
2: the reason for all the gauze. Yep.
1: Yeah, because they that was one thing I didn't really, and I guess you heard it a little bit in the the prologue, but they didn't want this. He mentions in this journal that. They didn't want this leper colony moving into Antonio Bay, so they thought if we kill if if we steer their boat onto some rocky spots and they hit these um rocks, if they follow the campfire, not only will we not have to deal with these lepers, we'll also get all their treasure that's on their ship. It's a you know win-win for them. So yeah. um he they does
2: not in the in the new one, they leaned more into that piece. They actually they do a flashback where you actually kind of see the moment and they loot the ship on purpose and light it on fire. Like they wait for it to crash and then they looted it. Uh, so they, they took a little bit more personal agency in making sure it went down. But yeah, it was the definite not in my backyard thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, that's cool. So when they had all that gauze wrapped around them and stuff, it may not be the look that Carpenter wanted. Which, okay. Fair, but it made sense to me. Right. That's what they'd look like
1: yeah it's it's a cool classic look and like i said i i think less is more like i didn't love the glowing red eyes i thought he was more creepy if he's just a shadowy figure but it doesn't take it, me out of it at all i just i think they're creepier when you just sort of see the outlines but yeah uh we you know we get to the church and then father malone is asking the oldest uh, the next oldest person in the building janet lee he's like hey can you help me break down this brick wall i'm like why are you asking her dude like anybody else there they're, they're trying to push things in front of the windows which is a class yes. a classic movie thing like let's push this wardrobe in front of the window and that will stop him which never works <laughs> but it provides a little bit of tension where one of the ghosts grabs uh nancy loomis's hair and almost gets her out but in the meantime they're they're breaking down these bricks where they found this book and they find this humongous golden cross i have no idea how they hid that in the wall because the thing is like you know it's got to weigh 100 pounds the way he's holding it is huge and uh, he knows what he's got to do. He's he takes his gold cross. He goes into the chapel, and they're all in the other room. He goes into the chapel and basically confronts Captain Blake and says, "You know, my grandfather's the one that killed you. Um, you know, here's your treasure. Please take it back, and please take me as the sixth person." And I, I love this scene where they both are touching it and it glows. That's such a cool scene.
2: It is, yeah. That you know what that cross reminded me of was the giant black cross from Vampires. Yeah. From his movie, Vampires. I just I just went, oh, this is the second John Carpenter movie (laughs) with the giant cross, Um, which is cool. Um, I liked that it glowed. I was trying to figure out the reason behind it. It was obviously a supernatural thing going on. Um, And obviously the father gets what he'll get. Um, But I was trying to figure out the why. Do you know the why behind like what did it or does it just it's supernatural? It doesn't need any explanation. It was going to kill the father. Um, he, w- it was a spirit taking what was his and that's just what it looked like. Is it simple and I'm making too much of it or no, was there more there?
1: I think it's probably a combination of, um, Dean Cody and John Carpenter saying what would make this look really cool. And, um, it's, you know, the, the big golden cross is, is they explain, um, the treasure they melted down into a cross and, so when they both touch it, I guess it's like the transfer of power, him reclaiming it and sort of ending what we think is ending the curse. And I, I'd i seen it several times, but it's been a while. And I, for some reason I had in my head, like that's when father Malone dies. But um, Nick comes in right as that's happening and sort of grabs him and pulls him back. And he, he lives for a little bit longer. Um, it it disappears into a blinding flash and Blake and his crew are gone. And we think the movie, like the curse has been lifted. It's over. Meanwhile, back at the lighthouse slash radio station um stevie has been running from the fog and she's like running out of time and running out of space and and it's really pretty intense scene where she ends up climbing to the very top of the lighthouse and she's dealing with two ghost pirates one's climbing up and following her ladder and one appears behind her with a hook and hooks her on the shoulder and almost gets her and luckily you know just in the nick of time um Captain Blake gets his gold cross and the fog starts rolling backwards. And what's really cool is I learned like to do that because of the restrictions of the fog, they couldn't, they couldn't suck in the fog. They could push it out, but they couldn't suck it in. So Adrian Barbeau um, acted that entire scene out backwards. Um, And she said, she said, even like the way you um, Carpenter even told her, like, you have to be careful when you blink because, um try just try not to blink while the camera's on your face because blinking and and when you play it in reverse looks weird. um, which I to me, blinking, I, I'm like, how does that make sense? Blinking looks the same forward, and backwards, but I guess not on camera. It doesn't look natural. <laughs> but um they they filmed it her, you know, with the fog um slowly rolling in and and then we played it reverse, so it looked like the fog was rolling out. so she had to play her emotions backwards, which is really cool and and very convincing. I didn't know that until you know, this watch, um, when I was reading some of the, the interesting facts,
2: I couldn't pick that out. Um, at all. Uh, the question I had and have for you, and look, you've seen it 12 times. I've seen it once. So, uh, or one and a half, I kind of went through some other scenes a second time to, to take notes did. Um, okay. It said six must die. Were they going to stay until one more died and then they were out and it was just a matter of who it was going to be, or were they there for the gold? and if they got that then they're out. It well, obviously by the end we know that's not the answer, but um I was trying to figure out like if one of them does die if if he sucks the if the pirates get the woman out of the window, killer or uh Stevie dies is that it? Because that was it was very clear with what was written on the floor in the autopsy room and they were down to one more. And I I was just trying to figure out it's a race to give them this thing that was very clear. The movie was very good at setting up. It's a race to give them what they're really after, which was their gold before the last one dies. But my question just would have been, and there's no sequel, so we don't know, but would they have left?
1: Right, and that's, uh, I, I honestly probably am guessing, and this is just speculation, Um, just knowing Carpenter and, and his stories and how some of his stuff just sort of is happy accidents. I'm guessing that he has no resolution to that. I, I'm guessing yeah. that, um, you know, it's just no, something that most people wouldn't think about. It's like, you know, know uh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, no, no. it's good to think about that stuff because he's like, you know, like you said, um, if, if it was the case of they, they just wanted the gold. And um, then, you know, Nancy Loomis's character was never really in danger. Or, you know, if they would have, after he took the gold, it's like, oh, we're all safe. And that's the assumption we're meant to um, believe. And then they have like a second sort of fun ending where, Um, Captain Blake comes back and does take out father Malone. And that was
2: the best. That was awesome. I was so thankful that scene happened. And I don't mean like, Oh, I'm glad they killed the guy. I mean, it just added a much more impactful ending. It, it changed everything.
1: Well, yeah. And it's, it's not a typical happy ending, which I like as Carpenter. He does that with his, you know, Halloween, you looked out the window and Michael Myers was gone. Um, with this one, you know, uh, they, you think it's over and you're safe and everybody's okay, and then he comes back and, and takes uh, Father Malone, yeah. which, rightfully so, it was his right. family that did this, you know, and, yeah. and Father Malone was was sacrificing himself anyways. He thought he was going to go, and Nick saved him, so, you right. know, he sort of just got an extra little, you know, what, half hour of life left, but... Right. um, Christine,
2: yeah. the car smasher, the little metal moves, right, yep. as the yep. radio cuts out, yep.
1: Yeah, so he's, he's sort of the master of, like, you know, putting a little uh tinge on the end. So you're not necessarily going home comfortable. Well,
2: even the thing, it just, we'll just sit oh, here and see what happens. Completely ominous. Yeah. Com- <laughs> right. that, that's
1: his most controversial ending. Like people still debate it all the time. Who was the thing? Were either of them the thing, um, you know, and he's like, people have been asking him that ever since that came out. And he's like, you know, to be honest, he plays, he plays with audiences, of course. And he's like, you know, that's, I'll never tell, but I, he, I don't think he ever had either one in mind it's like leave that that to the audience that's what's fun about it you
2: know oh agreed yeah like endings like the Sopranos when they're open to the interpretation I love it I'd rather it be that way honestly it's so much more fun so anyway yeah uh, having them come back like oh yeah we got the gold but see that's what I was gonna say they got their sixth now maybe it was because he's the one he's the family member that had the gold so the curse you're gonna pay for it or maybe it's like no hey we said six must die we only got five we're back we, we took the cross, we put it back on the ghost ship. And now we're back. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the answer is. It all works.
1: Well, yeah, you know, that does make me think because yeah, is it, is it to get that number six? Is it because of what he's, his family did or, um, is it just because Carpenter wanted one last sting, you know, a stinger at the very end, but, um, Either way, it's it's a cool little uh, way to wrap up the movie. And and one thing I, I do absolutely love about this movie, you know, there, there are several things I like about this movie, but um, Carpenter's score is another banger. Like, I love yeah. the, the piano theme. I mean, the guy is just this is his second, you know, major um, theatrical release. I mean, he did uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which I absolutely love. But um, that wasn't as that was sort of like a step in in the water. And then Halloween was, you know, the movie that exploded and got him this. And it's just like, you think after the success of Halloween, he might think maybe I'll just get somebody to do the score. But no, he was like, so Uh, it's sort of like, okay, the thing that got me the success in the first one, you know, I, I wrote, directed it. I did the score. Um, So he came back and did another great score. And and this is like this movie and the score are both like staples for me from like the end of September until November. You know, it's like, this is something I, the, 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 It's like a just a piano ballad. It's really cool and creepy, and it just reminds me, like when I hear it, I think of like you know the the fog and the ocean, the the sea, and these these ghosts. It's it's very ghostly type uh, score.
2: Yeah, it's very droning, and he his scores are as you you kind of said at the beginning of the show. um, They're simple, but they build tension all the time. Even even he did the score for Christine, and when the car starts coming for the kid, and he's running. It's that droning and it sounds like a heartbeat and it speeds up and it speeds up and it speeds up. You know what I mean? And it's he does a very good job of using very simple melodic structures to build tension. And it isn't fancy. It's not Hans Zimmer with a giant orchestra and electric guitars on stage or anything, but it is effective. And and sometimes in horror films, simple is more effective and honestly. Like I said, what you sometimes what you hear is worse than what you can imagine. And he he's awesome at this and his score for the thing and Halloween and this and Chris it, and Christine, all the ones I am very familiar with. This is the one that slipped by. But this was right up there. It, it I loved it. Um, I, 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 I love his his. Uh, some people think it's a joke. I've heard people a lot of people give him crap because they're so weird. <laughs> they are. They're weird mm-hmm. scores in a lot of ways. But they're they're very effective with what he's trying to do, which is build tension. He he's good at the musical jump scare. He's good at that. So anyway, uh, yeah, the score is awesome. I was I was I was making notes on the score for sure while I was while I was watching.
1: Well, it's funny because it's like John is my favorite director. Um, it's no secret. I talk about it all the time and. I think it's because it goes back to the time I saw his uh, the original Halloween and that sort of changed the way I watched movies like I had actually seen I think Halloween 6 and maybe Halloween 4 before the original and then I went and watched that and I'm like oh, oh so I, young. I, I was like oh I sort of I get it now and I wanted to know who made this movie I wanted to know the story so I start reading and then I'm like this guy has all these movies and then I start going through and I had actually seen a few and stuff but I remember finding the fog and I'm like this one never gets talked about, like everybody yep. talks about Big Trouble and and, and the thing and this. Um, but the fog sort of goes under the radar. And I, I'm, I'm sort of always wondered if it's like like a, bands suffer the same thing, the sophomore slump. And this wasn't his sophomore film. He actually did Dark Star and he did Elvis. Someone's Watching Me, Assault on Precinct 13. And uh, but it's sort of the sophomore like like um, Tarantino trying to follow up. Pulp Fiction, he did Jackie Brown, and it got sort of uh, brutalized because everybody goes in with these expectations. Oh, you know, he he made this huge, great movie, Pulp Fiction. How's he going to follow it up? There's almost no way to follow it up. It's never going to be as good. So it's. I think that's what it, it suffers from as far as people remembering it and considering it a classic.
2: Yeah, he, it was his sophomore big uh theatrical release film because elvis and someone's watching me were between halloween and this now someone's watching me was made for was that made for tv am i correct yeah okay i've never seen it i need to i i i've not seen that i need to and i it's probably because it was made for a tv movie and back then it was appointment television or you missed it and i'm a little I'm older than you but i'm 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 too i would have been too young for i would have been way too in diapers still by the time that one was on tv with appointment television but um yeah this one definitely gets lost i think he's got several that get lost honestly because those big three big trouble the thing and halloween are the ones everybody talks about but i you know i rattled off his you know his filmography earlier, and I'm I'm a fan of every dang one of them. I even think Ghost of Mars is is underrated for what it is. I, I and it gets crap. Um, I I got to admit I don't quite get in the mouth of madness all the time, but I understand what he's going for. I just get confused, but that's it was the that was the whole point of the movie anyway. So, um, but no, I I agree with you. I think it get lost. I I'm I was glad to see that it had a real positive rating and at least it's held in high regard now. Um, but I don't remember the. I'm sure. I'm sure the Siskel and Ebert feeling back then is what the feeling was. I don't know. I mean, it made a ton of money, did it not? I mean, I it made it was made for like what one mil?
1: Yeah, it it, it did very well financially. Um, and like I said, Carpenter wasn't exactly happy with the final product, and uh, you know he sort of talks about how they basically he put out Halloween. He thought it was a flop, and he was ready to move on. And so he starts doing. This movie. And uh, then he starts getting word like, uh, oh, Halloween has a second life because um, it got like this this really big positive write up. And then it like it got a second wind and it became, you know, then Siskel Niebuhr talked about it and they love that one. And so people wanted to be a part of that. So then he was like, you know, while he was in pre-production for The Fog, he started getting more people interested and he got a little bump in in the uh, budget department, but he still, you know, hired all of his friends that were on um, his earlier work. Adrian Barbeau was in um, somebody's watching me. And, you know, like I I mentioned earlier, all these, most of these um, people either had worked with him before or end up working with him later in his career. But, uh, you know, he was, he's smart and they saw the value of him being able to make a stylish horror movie in Halloween with next to no money and to, to rake in a ton of money. So, Um, you know, everybody wanted a piece of that. So he had a little bit easier time getting this one made, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting in his like filmography, there are some lost films and and it's cool now with, you know, boutique labels and we have streaming everywhere that, um, people are rediscovering them and they're becoming more of cult classics, more beloved. And it's funny too, because so many films now modern films are trying to copy that simplistic score type thing where they're trying to do either synth or piano scores like Carpenter. And, and when I saw him, Oh, it's been years now. Um, he was at like a wizard world convention. He did a Q and a, and somebody was like, what do you think about modern um, composers doing John Carpenter S scores? on their movies. And he's like, I, I find it flattering, but, um, I'm at home. I love making music. Um, you can have John Carpenter do the score. <laughs> he's like, just call me. I might be cheaper than you expect because I'm not doing anything. It was before he was doing his Lost themes album and got a record deal and toured and everything. But, um, it's, oh, h- awesome. yeah, it's, it's hilarious because he was like, you know, you can just call John Carpenter and get the real thing probably for about the same cost. Cause I love, uh, he's like, it's not, he loves doing music. He does not love making movies anymore. And um, you My could head. tell that we I, we saw him live both tours he did in Chicago and um, his stage presence. He just loved being up there. I've never you know, the guy was notoriously grumpy for most of his career. And when he's on stage playing music with his, his son and his godson, uh, he's in his element. You can tell he's actually loving that and loving to play for fans. And like, you know, every song he plays gets a bump. I mean, it, how, it, how weird is it to be like in the crowd watching 75 uh, year old John Carpenter playing playing the fog theme on on a keyboard with, you know, the movie playing on a screen behind him? It's so like a full band playing. It's so dope. Like in, in this
0: oh, time and age.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really cool. But it's like they, they cheered him on like a rock star. And it's like you could tell on his face like he was in that moment, man. He loved it
2: that's awesome yeah i'm a huge fan i'm um i i believe that music is the oxygen through which a a film breathes i think it makes or breaks things um i try to break down music and score on our 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 show all the time i love it um i hear it more than most people do um because i'm i'm big into music i mean movies and music are the two big big hobby things i've i've got and uh I I hear it more than most. And so I was pleased to see, I figured before I even, I think uh, right when the credits started rolling, like, oh, Carpenter did the score. I didn't even look, I I was like, oh, that was him. I figured he did, but uh, it was nice to hear that he had.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, later in his career, he ended up, um, you know, partnering up with Alan Howarth, who did a lot of the, he worked with him on, you know, some of the later stuff like They Live and that. But um, then of course, famously used Ennio Morricone on the thing and then ended up going in and re-recording some of his own stuff because he's sort of a control freak. And, um, I mean, you have one of the world's best composers ever doing stuff and then John's like, uh, it's not quite what I envisioned. So I'm going to go back and, and redo some of it. But, um, you know, they both, that, that combination of those two is really great in that movie. Yeah.
2: That's chocolate and peanut butter for me. I mean, me that's, too. that's awesome. Right. Um, I don't know if it's, uh, I was trying to figure out a way to 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 bring this up. But there is a film that parodies this that almost no one knows exists. But I want to see if I want to test your I want to test your acumen. Have you ever heard of a 1983 comedy horror spoof movie called Hysterical? No. Okay, it's out of print. It was last printed in blue on DVD in 2001, but it used to be on HBO all the time when I was a kid because I'm old. Um, But it is scary movie before scary movie was a thing. And it was written by these three guys called the Hudson Brothers. They're kind of like the Farley Brothers. They, They just do funny stuff. But this film was the foundation. There was a lighthouse. There was fog. There was a ghost pirate guy that would kill you. And if he killed you, you turned into a zombie. And it was literally poking fun. It poked fun at Jaws. It poked fun of every horror movie that was really famous up to that point. And the fog was its was its central theme. And if the fog showed up, these big spotlights hit you, cause this fog glowed and oh it glowed. I mean it like <laughs> it like blinded you. And then um the guy who played Jaws in the James Bond movies, that actor, was the kill captain it was Captain Howdy you know, exorcist. Right. And anyway, it, and Captain Howdy killed you and you turned into a zombie. And if you turned into a zombie, the only thing you could say is what difference does it make? So that's how they knew you had a zombie. You had bushy eyebrows <laughs> and all you said was what difference does it make. Anyway, the guy who played, uh, on Mork and Mindy, his, uh, his alien brother guy was in it. It, it just—it's one of those films. That just got lost, and I laughed my head off every time I saw it. And now that I see the fog, I get half the jokes that are now in it that I had memorized. Anyway, it's real weird not to print and and way off topic, but it was scary movie before scary movie was a thing, and it just got lost. I, I don't know why the rights to it just fell apart and nobody printed it. I—I've tried to find digital copies. I have a VHS copy, but nothing to play it on. Um, but anyway, there's weird bizarre insane stupid trivia for you.
1: No, that's that's interesting. That it's called hysterical You said
2: it's called hysterical you can find trailers on YouTube for it, and it's funny uh, You can see that you can see the trailer, but yeah, and what's really funny You know how she keeps screaming like get out of the way you're okay Well, there's a village idiot running around telling everybody they're doomed <laughs> and every time the fog shows up, He's like you're doomed. He's like what you're doomed. No you really you're doomed and they have this anyway. I won't get into it, but yeah, it's called hysterical. It was from right after this movie was made, and the fog is the central thing it spoofs. There, the, anything the light, the lighthouse would shine a spotlight on anything that was about to die, then the fog would show up. And anyway, it was awesome.
1: That's interesting because, like we just talked about, this is not like one of Carpenter's um, well-known and and. In- bigger films but maybe at the time you know in 82
2: and 83 it was (laughs) yeah
1: yeah so (laughs) yeah because he hadn't made the ones that ended up you know becoming more at the i guessing at the time a follow-up to halloween that's probably why it banked so much money because people wanted to go see what the guy who made halloween um, is following it up with
2: it made fun of raiders of the lost ark it made fun of jaws it made fun of this it made fun of exorcist i mean it just it was scary movie before scary movie was a thing and this was its central themed movie that it made fun of anyway
1: that's awesome so we're going to take a quick break here and get into trivia afterwards but um, i want to talk about a featured podcast uh this week on the prescribed films podcast network it's our newest show cracktastic plastic so if you've listened to attack of the killer podcast you know jason he's been on scott's show also Um, He is in a band called X-Ray Mary. It's a punk rock band based here in Iowa. And they when they would tour as a band to different venues, they would book their shows around toy stores in the U.S. And so this group obviously hasn't been able to perform um, over the last year due to COVID restrictions. All music venues are closed. So they decided, why don't we talk about all the toys, the toy shops that we've um, visited, because they're all Toy Collectors, Jason's Transformers, Elgin Collects, uh, He-Man, and Corey Collects uh, G.I. Joe. So it's, sort of, it's a very interesting podcast where they talk about collecting, they have different guests on, and they, talk, uh, they feature a different toy uh, store every episode. But that's the newest uh, show on the PFPN. You'll have to check it out. And then we'll hear from the Podcast Network, and then we'll be back with some more trivia. all right and welcome back so i have a little bit of trivia i usually pull some of this off imdb i also like i said today while i was at work i watched some youtube videos and listened to uh some different audio tracks um about this movie what was interesting there's this uh this little mini film called inside the fear on film inside the fog and i'm guessing it's like a tv series that came out in the 80s that would promote new movies And funny enough, I was watching the end credits and it had uh, Mick Garris as a producer and we all know Mick Garris, who's who's, you know, notoriously worked on Stephen King projects. But this was in the early 80s before all that. But um, this this episode's really interesting because it interviews most of the key cast and they talk about the making of this film. And it was used as a promotional piece before the film came out. And. Um, so I have a little bit of information from that, but if you want even more, I suggest watching it's, it's only like an eight minute video and it's really fun, interesting look back because I love the intros and the, they, they edited out the commercials, but it's clear it was on like maybe broadcast TV or something. But, um, Jamie Lee Curtis talks a little bit about how happy she was to work with her mom on this film, but also happy that John didn't make them a mother daughter, uh, relationship in the film because she always wanted to work with her mom, but did not. She, she every after Halloween, every studio came to them and they're like, we're going to get you two in a package deal, playing mother and daughter in a horror movie. And that was like her worst nightmare because she wanted to be separate from her mom. She didn't want to just follow her mom's footsteps, but she also knew that was sort of her way in. So um she was happy that John did not make them any they didn't even have any scenes together in the movie until the very end. And she was just um, elated that John wanted her back. And she sort of did it as a favor, like, OK, John gave me my big shot and, and got me into movies. So, you know, I'll come back and play a smaller role. And, and funny enough, when John wrote this, you know, obviously, he wrote Adrian Barbeau as the lead as Stevie. And um, after Halloween's second wave of success, it was clear they had to push Jamie Lee on the poster. So you see the, the one sheet it's her like trying to close the door as a hands coming in the fog, but she's not the star. And there was a little bit of turmoil there because John was like, you know my wife Adrian is the lead she should be on the posters but i understand to sell this film we have to put Jamie Lee Curtis on the poster cuz it's like John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis back again so oh, sure it is interesting to hear their perspective on it and how they actually address that and and realize but you know the world of film you have to sell you have to push what sells and i imagine people going to see this after halloween it was like well Jamie Lee Curtis isn't really in it that much, you know, and she doesn't have many lines. She's not she's not the lead. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear from them anyways.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. It, in fact, I, I will tell you that it 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 didn't throw me, but I did get a third or way through the film and assumed they were related, but the film never said it. And then we kind of, I kind of got to oh, yeah, they're not connected at all. But I in my head they were. And so they had a valid concern because my head immediately connected them when they're not connected. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they, they make a little, little, I think maybe one line, um, that one of the guys on that first ship that gets attacked is the husband is, um, Janet Lee's husband, like one of the sailors that gets killed one of the first three. And, uh, they don't really go back to that. Like she's, she's at the town celebration for Antonio Bay. And, you know, there's a phone call to the sheriff, like, you know, something's going on. You need to call Stevie at the radio station. But um, they don't really go back to the fact that her husband was one of those that, that was killed. Like she still goes on with the um, unveiling of this new statue and everything. You think they would like reach out and be like, look, your husband's, you know, she she sort of does say something like, you know, sometimes, you know, they're they get drunk or they they don't come home on time. And, and it seemed like Nancy Loomis's character was more um, concerned than she actually was for her husband. But uh, it doesn't really end up playing a huge role in the movie. But yeah, it's it the Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee. is It's cool that they're both in it. But in and obviously Carpenter, when he did Halloween, cast Jamie Lee Curtis because he loved Janet Lee and he he named Loomis after, you know, Sam Loomis and, and, and Psycho. And it was obviously, you know, a huge influence on on him as far as a filmmaker. So it's just cool. Like his his the second he could, he actually had met he, Janet Lee said that they met at, at the screening of Halloween. And she said, if you ever have a um, role in mind for a, an older or middle-aged woman. Um, (laughs) I, I will honestly answer my phone. Like, don't feel like I'm too big for you. And Carpenter was just delighted. Like, are are you kidding? So he got her phone number and when he was riding the fog, he wrote that role for her. He, I mean, he wrote every like role with, with except for one, which I'll talk about later. Um, almost every role he got who he wanted. So, uh, it's just really cool to think like she was humble enough. To, she went and saw her daughter's film, and she recognized the talent. And she's like, "This guy's really, really good, and he's going to be something." So I want to get in now. And oh, heck yeah! And can you imagine like at the premiere of your first big movie, Janet Lee comes up, and she's like, <laughs> "Hey, I'd love to be in one of your movies." Like as a horror fan for him, it was probably like a oh shit moment. Like oh my god, you're Janet Lee, of course.
2: Yeah, the OG screen, you know, scream queen, right? Um, do you know the next film and the only other one they appeared in? Because I do know that one. I actually happen to. I'm I, sure I, you probably do too.
1: I know they're in H2 Halloween H2O together.
2: That's the only one I know okay. of. Yep.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's the only one. I I don't remember them being anything else together.
1: Yeah, me either. So I don't. I don't think. Yeah. It's so yeah. It's interesting. They're both. Yeah. I mean, that one was originally intended to be a John Carpenter movie. It fell through, but um. Yep. So a little more trivia. I'll move on from that uh, little episode if you want to watch it. Like I said, it's called Fear on Film Inside the Fog on YouTube. It's really cool. But um, although this was essentially a low-budget, independent movie, John Carpenter chose to shoot the movie in anamorphic widescreen panavision. This decision gave the movie a grander feel for the viewer, so that it didn't seem as such a low-budget horror movie. And That's me, interesting.
2: What, what else would it have been filmed in at the time?
1: I'm not sure because they sort of did that with Halloween, too, but they they really talk about it a lot on the special features like him and um, Dean Cundey, because they say, you know, with those such wide screens, you don't get really good close ups of people's faces and reactions and stuff. And it leaves um, some dead space. But then Cundey was sort of explaining that when you get those wide shots of like the lighthouse or different houses on on the sea, it's like when you have that fog rolling and it really makes it look grand and big and sort of um, you watch that fog engulf these these spaces. So he thought it was the right choice. And, you know, they I'm not an expert at all on aspect ratio, so I'm not sure as far as um, what the alternative would have been. But at the time for someone, you know, and at, at the time, again, this still was a low budget movie. It wasn't like. Um, after Pulp Fiction, you know, Tarantino could basically do whatever the fuck he wanted. And this, he still had limitations as far as budget and stuff. So um, he made the choice to sort of put a little bit of that budget into using uh, the Panavision anamorphic widescreen. So interesting. Yeah. So after a rough cut of this movie appeared to be much too short for a theatrical release, which was um, less than 80 minutes, uh, he added more scenes, which we talked about in that prologue, which they uh, shot in a soundstage. Um, this one I thought was really interesting. The lead ghost, Blake was played by makeup specialist, Rob botten, who's very infamous. Um, when botten asked for the job, carpenter asked him to stand up Botton then expected carpenter to say, and get out. But uh, carpenter wanted to see how tall he was. So <laughs> when he saw that he was six foot five and um, pretty thin, he thought this is exactly what I need is like a boating character. So he cast him as Blake. So it's interesting, like one of the best, you know, special effects guys out there next to Savini is like ended up playing this guy. You would never see his face. He, he essentially playing a body, you know, but it, it's it's really cool Like that he wanted to be involved. So
2: is uh, and of the of the reshoots. I don't know why I think this was the top of the lighthouse reshot, too.
1: I'm not sure I uh, I do know there was they mentioned one of those scenes on top of lighthouse the one where the hook goes into her shoulder okay uh, that I, ad- they added the second ghost behind her
2: okay I don't know why that looked that way to me I, I don't it's not fair to the film for me to say that but it just seemed I don't know that seemed like something that they would have added to kind of I don't know make make it more yeah that makes sense
1: yeah, so let's see. Um, so yeah, but Rob Bottin ended up, you know, later doing the uh, special effects for the thing, which made him, you know, the go-to guy at the times. The practical right. effects just fantastic. Um, Adrian Barbeau patterned her voice after Alison Steele, who was a female yeah. disc jockey from the 1960s, who was known as the Nightbird.
2: I was gonna say that was a very, very deliberate and distinctive choice for a DJ voice, and it was also very common back then for yeah we didn't have morning zoos back then so right that was a lot more that was a lot more common but yeah that was a very when i was listening to her do it i was like wow that's that is a deliberate choice (laughs) that is not just her talking like a person like that is deliberate so yeah that makes sense
1: yeah i liked it i thought you know hers they have that sort of smooth talk where it's almost like flirtatious um uh, and, you know, like it's interesting, you know, the Nightbird from the 1960s, which makes sense, especially when you think of movies like uh, American Graffiti, you know, and, and movies set in that sort of era where they would hear, you know, female or even male. Uh, and they would all have like conspicuous names like Nightbird. But,
2: oh, my my mom's 1970 Pinto with an AM only radio. I heard many a disc jockey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it sounded like that <laughs> when we drive home from from the city at night. I That is not unrealistic.
1: So here's one that's very interesting. Um, I, I hinted to it earlier, but the role of Father Malone was originally offered to Sir Christopher Lee, who believed the character uh, to be the father of the community. However, Lee proved unavailable and Hal Holbrook was eventually cast.
2: Ooh, do you think it would have been better?
1: um i don't think so i think i i love christopher lee but i think it might have been more distracting like really yeah i mean he's he's great i love him but i would it just would have been like oh shit there's i don't think of him as anything but christopher lee and how how hallbrook really uh dials it in and uh, listening to deborah hill who i i should talk a little bit about her soon but um she talks about Hal Hallbrook, and it's clear like she just loved him and was so happy he agreed to it and I think um they ended up really just in loving his performance and thinking he knocked out of the park, so they were very happy with him
2: well, nice, and also hal hallbrook by by nineteen eighty wasn't the hal hallbrook that <laughs> right, <laughs> not that he wasn't doing anything before that he had, but he really made his name as a character actor for the next you know two or three decades after that, so
1: yeah yeah makes and sense. uh like I said deborah hill i I don't think she just like this movie g- ever gets enough credit um she's she's not with us anymore, but a lot of people associate John Carpenter with Jamie Lee Curtis, and you know they're sort of a couple and and the different women um John hooked up with Adrian Barbeau and stuff but uh she, Deborah Hill, you know you see her name in those opening credits to most of his really big films at the early stage of his career. And she went on to produce some great things. Same with Dean Cundy. He, I believe he ended up doing some of Spielberg stuff. He ended up doing Jurassic Park, I think. I mean, these, these other people, I think, you know, I love Carpenter and think he's great, but you, you sort of look at his later career and you, and people sort of question, you know, well, what happened between, you know, like some people think, you know, Ghost of Mars is really the, the bottom or even Village of the Damned or, um, you know, vampires. He, the, a lot of people think he fell off quality wise, but you look later's career, he he didn't have for some of these later films, didn't have Dean Cundy. He didn't have Deborah Hill producing. Um, I think right. he had people need to give a little more credit to her and and Dean for that early work, because especially the look of these films, you can see like a parallel between Halloween, the fog, that eerie glow, the blue, cool look of the film. Um, that's, you know, that's more Dean I'd say than, than Carpenter to get that eerie look. So um, I
2: agree. And um, it, she, she also did. She's also done some of the best comedies I've ever seen. One of the best. It's in my top, whatever she did clue, which mm-hmm. is, a, which is hilarious. She did a babysitting. I remember. And I think if I'm not wrong, did she do she did one of the Pee-wee movies i don't know why i yep. remember that yeah she did big top Pee-wee. okay yeah she did the bad one okay yeah <laughs> was, yeah yeah <laughs> that's all good
1: yeah um but yeah i remember seeing that she worked on uh adventures of babysitting and that was like a staple of our household growing up my i have older <sighs> i have older siblings my sister that was like her jam that we watched that a lot that and greece were like her two movies we watched all the time but uh yeah, Deborah Hill. I I have a cool shirt that just has the uh, classic Halloween font, and it says, you know, produced by Deborah Hill. I just it's just so simple, but I I've always felt like um, she doesn't, especially since she's passed, she doesn't get enough credit when people talk about Carpenter. So I wanted to make sure I I brought her up and talked a little bit about her, especially um, looking at his first film, the one that was the huge success that broke him into the mainstream with Halloween. She made those female characters. Um, she wrote all their dialogue. She made them what they were believable um, teenage girls. And I feel like without her female touch on those characters and probably um, Stevie and several of the characters in this, you know, she was a co-writer on this movie. Uh, I feel like her female touch to these female characters really adds something.
2: No, a hundred percent. She, she doesn't get, she's a, well, we lost her wildly too soon, uh-huh. a, a criminally too soon. Um, I think she was in her early, she was in her mid fifties, I think. Yeah. Um, no, you're not wrong. She, she's got, she's got a, a, a producer list that would arrive. You, I, you could stand it up against many and, and I'd take my chances with her. She, she's fantastic. You're, you're not wrong. I don't know why. She, do we know why I, the one movie that I always expected her to be on that she's not was the thing weren't the, I, I don't, I, maybe she had stopped working with him at that point. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just I d- expected her. Yeah.
1: I don't know too much of their like if they had a falling out or they she they just went their separate ways and she sort of wanted to separate like her name from his. But I know that they at one point were, you know, romantically a couple and then split and they continued to work together. So it wasn't like that.
2: yeah In fact, she did one of his next last movies. She did escape from L.A. with him because I remember seeing it on the billboard. I mean, I remember seeing it in the credits. for the- I was like, oh, Deborah Hill came back and did this. So even late, In his career, because he only did a couple other movies after that, so she was still working with him, so they must have, I mean, they must have gotten along at some level, I would assume.
1: Right, yeah, and it wouldn't, I mean, that's not surprising, because, you know, coming back, that was a sequel, so he probably at least was like, hey, you know, we're doing a follow-up to Escape from New York, but maybe she just... You know, she was doing well enough on her own that she she didn't need to, you know, continue working with him. I'm not sure I haven't. That would be something I need to look into. But I know that she participated up until her um, early passing. She participated in as many like commentaries and special features on on stuff. So, you know, there was no ill will and and no bad feelings as far as that stuff went. She's always been proud of her work with him and they got along after they um, split. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of famous stories about about her and Carpenter and about, you know, the, the mask from Halloween one to two was so yellowed and, and weird, weirdly looking because, uh, she had it under her bed and she was a, an infamous chain smoker as was, uh, John. <laughs> and so a right. lot of people think the second, the mask in Halloween two looks so sickly because of cigarette smoke, but you know, that's just, I think that's mostly lore It's just, um, latex ages over time. But, uh, yeah. And
2: she, Dr. Loomis beat the hell out of him in the first <laughs> one. You're going to have to give it some credit. You know, yeah, so.
1: exactly. Yeah. And time passed. And <laughs> I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis looks weird in the second one cause she's wearing a wig, but um, oh, I
2: know. And who knew the last Starfighter was going to save her. So
1: Probably yeah, ex- exactly. But uh, yeah, just wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about her too, because uh, we, we've been spilling our love all over John Carpenter and, you know, she, she deserves a lot. And I think Dean, um, Cundy reserves deserves a lot of credit, too, because, you know, he can shoot the hell out of a movie and and the sort of he followed this sort of weird thing later, like Carpenter did where towards the tail end of his career. And I, I, I maybe it's just we see it all the time where, you know, these directors who were fantastic at one point and it's like the film world just sort of passes them by or something. But um, yeah. Dean ended up, you know, he he went from like doing working with Spielberg and doing some great films. And I think he ended up like the last couple things I saw him working on was like baby geniuses or something weird, like and I'm like, all right, man, like whatever you gotta do to make money. But then again, like, you know, uh John Hughes, he was like writing some of that stuff towards the end of his life. So, you know, who am I to judge? Like we talked about earlier in this episode, you know, they're they're still make getting things made. Good on them, man.
2: Hey man, I don't have any credits to my name, so exactly. who am I to talk?
1: Me too. So uh Actors Tom Atkins, Hal Hallbrook, and Adrian Barbeau later co starred in George A. Romero's classic Creep Show, which is in '82. So just two years later, they sort of got that ensemble cast back together for Creep Show, which is another favorite of mine.
2: Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's funny. I grew up, got HBO in the early mid 80s for the first time. You had the giant, chunky box on top of your TV. Um, Creep Show 2 was the one that I saw a lot because it was out in rotation at the time. And then I came back and circled back to Creep Show. So I ended up seeing the second one, I don't know, ten times more than the first one, which is really weird so and unfortunate. The,
1: the raft, right? In Creep Show Two. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, the
2: raft. Oh yeah, that icky raft and oh my god, that <laughs> was well, it was it it uh she laid her face that the girlie was hitting on laid her face on the side of the <laughs> raft and it came up and sucked her face. anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was it. That yeah. was it. So I talked a little bit
1: about this one, but I still I want to read it out. Cause it's, it's very interesting. Um, John Carpenter named characters, Nick Castle, Dan O'Bannon, Tommy Lee Wallace. Um, they're all named after Carpenter's real life collaborators from, uh, previous movies. He did Dan O'Bannon who's known for, I think, um, alien. He also did dark star, which is John's like first feature film out of college. And that's a weird one. Have you ever seen dark star? I have not that. I don't know, man. That's <laughs> I, I, I it's a college film. It's it's right out of college as a feature, and it's and it's about it's a space movie about a giant bouncing ball that has a voice. It is something, man. Like it is that
2: where the weird and basketball from Big Trouble in Little China came from? That little weird ball- I, I,
1: I could definitely see some <laughs> some uh, parallels there, but it's it's something to watch once just to see where Carpenter and Dan Dano uh, Dan O'Bannon started. I I would not. Um, invite you on the show to talk about it so much because I don't know I would have enough to say about it but um it's definitely I've I've tried to see everything he's done I think there's one one film he made in in college that ended up winning like um an honorary or like a student Oscar and it's never been available I don't think I think there's Hmm. some stills out there it has like a masked killer but um I've always been interested in just seeing as much of Carpenter's work. There's one I he wrote that didn't he didn't direct that I haven't seen, and I'm hoping to get um, my fellow host Andy on the show for that one because he hasn't seen it either. But
2: that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I love directors. You know, I'm I'm real interested when I see like George Lucas's THX. You know, one one three eight. Like what? Where the heck did this start from? I love watching the films like that. Like where they cut their teeth.
1: Yeah, it's it's always cool to look back and see. Yeah, where it started. Um, and this is the one I've, I talked about too, but uh, I still, I want to talk about again, just because it's so interesting in the last scene where Stevie is on top of the lighthouse and the fog slowly disappears. The crew realized that they would not be able to get the fog to roll out. So Carpenter had Adrian Barbeau perform the scene in such a way that the film could be played in reverse. So, um, if you haven't seen this, I'm not sure how you've made it into almost like an hour and a half into this show. We've spoiled everything for you, but, um, you know, I, I hope that you watch it before listening so that you don't have that like you don't you're paying attention to that. But it is cool. Like I hadn't realized it until this viewing and watched it. And I still really can't see like it doesn't it doesn't make it obvious to me. But on that little um featurette I watched, they they show it played back and they sort of reverse and fast forward, back, reverse, fast forward, back and forth. And it's sort of cool to see like, OK, that makes sense, like to see her actually how she acted it, you know, played in reverse as she yeah, as play in reverse as to what we've seen, if that's not confusing.
2: Um Right. And is it as is it as she's watching the fog roll out, or it it's so she's down from the top, right? And back in the room, or she's still on the top?
1: She's on the top and the fog s- starts to dissipate from the top of the lighthouse.
2: Okay, and the and the 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 pirates start to back off? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, I'll have to watch for that. I couldn't tell.
1: Yeah. And, and it's sort of cool. Like, you know, hearing Carpenter talk about like, or her, she was actually talking about how Carpenter told her, like, don't try not to blink. She's like, what, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you can tell it's a big giveaway. If the way people blink and reverse, it looks different. Like it looks like you're doing, I don't know. I don't know what distinction is to me. Blinking is just closing and opening your eyes, but, um,
2: I don't know. Now I'm going to videotape myself with a <laughs> phone and then I'm going to play it backwards and see if I look weird.
1: Yeah, give it a try. Uh, I, I can't imagine. I'm just trying to think like, I, I know that that's been done throughout, you know, in in millions of films, how they do the reverse acting. But I've always imagined like acting in normal in in the normal time is hard enough. I can't imagine trying to act in reverse. So
2: well, and the cheap way to do it, if, if you didn't want to go to that trouble is just not put her in the shot and just reverse the fog rolling out mm-hmm. or rolling in, just reverse it. So he could have, cut, he could have cut an easy corner. No one would have faulted him for it. No one would have noticed if she just looks out into nothing. And then you cut the fogs rolling away and you cut to her, cut to the fog, cut to her, cut to the fog. The fact that they went to the trouble to do it is really awesome. And I'm going to have to watch that again because you could if I'm a director and I don't have a big budget, I'm thinking of a way around this, honestly. But the fact that he didn't and they powered through and figured out a way to do it and have her act with it all around her is even more cool. Now I'm going to have to watch it again because I you're right. I, I, it just went right by Had You not told me I never would have known.
1: Yeah. Um, Cundy and Carpenter both talked about, it, and Deborah on that featurette talked about how, uh, especially Cundy, he talked about how hard it is to deal, like shoot fog because, um, you think, you know, he's like, I've, I've done millions of movies where they come in with, um, a little fog squirter and they squirt it up it quickly, shoot the shot and then move on. He's like this, almost every scene in this movie has fog in it and you can't control it. So they showed some of the behind the scenes where these guys have what look like leaf blowers, but they have these big uh, boxes attached to them that are like fog machines and they go in quickly and blow it around. And someone with like this big piece of cardboard, sort of like a fan comes in and tries to push it in certain directions and then steps out right. of the shot and they try to shoot as quick as possible. And of course I told you how they do the miniatures and stuff to make it over the buildings, which is really cool. But it's like, in some of the scenes, especially with the, actual actors we sort of forget that you know they couldn't just do it in post they couldn't just add fog so it was like to him shooting it he was like this is sort of a pain in the ass um, because it's, it's just almost impossible to to actually control but they he said that it was funny because he was like asking the the special effects team like so what what special concoction do you guys have that you're using to make the fog and they're like oh we just call it fog juice it's like What's that? It's like it's, it's like what is that? It's like oh, it's just stuff we buy. It's just called fog juice. You just buy it, and they're like, he was like underwhelmed. Like oh, you, I thought you guys came up with like <laughs> this formula to make it a certain thing. He's like, no, it's just normal movie fog. We just use a ton of it. So you know, right. we but,
2: use a metric ton of it.
1: Yeah, like like you talked about, you know, that scene where they he could have easily just done a scene where um he cuts back and forth between the fog and and Adrian Barbeau is it also harkens back to where we're talking about how the fog is a character in itself and seeing them in the same shot and seeing it roll out. I imagine that, especially at the time people probably were like, how did they do that? How did they actually suck the fog back in? Some of the shots where it's leaving the town, obviously they just play that in reverse, but, um, it's, it's really cool. It makes me actually think of the scene that's really awful in Anaconda, the movie with Ice Cube and Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> um, where they're going through um, this like the Nile or something. They're going down this uh, stream in this in their boat uh, and there's this waterfall and then to they didn't get a shot of them coming back. So to establish that they're coming back, they just played the waterfall in reverse and. And the boat going in reverse, and it's the waterfall's going up. And it's like, who thought this was a good idea? It's very obvious.
2: (laughs) You know, it's funny. The only other movie I remember, because it it just harkens to you can't get, you can't control the fog. You can kind of control kind of the direction it goes, but you kind of can't control it. It reminds me of Arachnophobia, getting those spiders to move in the direction that they really wanted them to move when they wanted them to move. They. Had to do similar stuff, air machines, and then they had to take what they could get. And sometimes they had to reverse stuff that I I bet it was a complete nightmare. And then sometimes you need the fog to leave. It's like, well, get it out of here. Hang on. Let's start it over. I can't imagine it probably was a massive headache.
1: Yeah. And like Carpenter's always sort of said, uh, it wasn't it didn't do what he wanted it to do. It wasn't what was in his mind. But to me, it's always looked it's really been eerie. It's been a classic to play. Every October, um, if it's if it's a foggy day and I'm driving to work like I, I live right along the Mississippi, I can see the Mississippi River from my window. Um, it's so it's often foggy in the mornings when I go to work. I always think of this movie. Um, oh, yeah. Robert Eggers that directed The Witch, uh, he was asked, is there any advice to first time filmmakers? it made me think of this because of how difficult the fog was to work with. And he said, yeah, don't put a goat in your movie. That was like his advice. Cause in the witch he had the main characters, black Philip the goat. And he said, it was a nightmare working with that. So um, I imagine Carpenter sort of like, don't work with fog. But now, now, you know, the new movie is probably completely CG you know, just right. fix it in post. But uh,
2: yeah, they say not children or animals. And then Harrison Ford does a movie last year and the dog was never there. So I just yeah. don't need to worry about it anymore.
1: Yeah. So luckily, yeah, they've just fixed it in post now. But at, I imagine, like I said, at the time, seeing that fog sort of pull out of town, people were like, oh, this is really how did they how in the world did they control this? Because it makes it look alive. But seeing it like backlit and uh, everything is just it to me, it, it works out.
2: I will say, like I said, I've only seen half the the remake and I'll finish it. I'll I'll finish it. I just didn't get to finish last night. They made a bigger deal about the fact that if the fog can't get there, the ghosts can't get there. So if you can keep the fog out, you can keep the ghosts out. And they actually did. They do some really neat effects of following the fog through grates and down tunnels and up things and. It's inter. It would be interesting for you to watch it to see what they can do with modern special effects, or at least for, you know, 15 years ago, um, because they really leaned into that that aspect of the rules of the world that if the fog can't get there, you can't you're you're OK, which is why that one guy ends up trapping himself in a place the fog couldn't get. But that's really interesting. Uh, but I got to admit, I I watched this and I don't see a lot of difference. I mean, I can because I'm not blind, but it it works. It still works today. The The effects still work today.
1: That's I think the the times like Carpenter was being cynical about his own movie was actually during the promotion of the remake, um, saying basically like these guys have the technology at their fingertips that I wish I would have had. So it's going to be better, like basically saying um budgetary reasons and having to use real fog, um, held me back. So these new filmmakers with this new, but this new technology, um, are going to make a better version of my film. Of course, then after it, it bombed at the box office, he came out and sort of said, well, I had nothing to do with it. I just collected a check and it's my, he's always said, you know, I absolutely love when, um, studios remake my films because that means I get a huge paycheck for doing absolutely nothing. Uh, (laughs) and it wasn't until the new Halloween where he's, he's actually been involved with a movie. They actually sort of made him work for his money. And, uh, I, I, that's a whole different podcast, but I, I think, um, it's sort it's a of a damn good movie. Yeah. And and in he they talk about the things that he suggested and made notes of and there were good changes. So
2: yeah. Um, that it, that movie was better than it had any business be, and I went into it completely expecting it to be ex like the fog. Like, uh, yeah. ah, that was a good attempt, but yeah, give me the original. Man, you know what? Yeah, it's another podcast though.
1: Yeah, he still talks about too, about um Christine and how he was like Uh, I try to make a a killer car movie scary. It didn't really work out. The car wasn't very scary. I'm like, dude, that car was terrifying. Yeah.
2: So, oh, the radio is so terrifying. I mean, so smart. I mean, the book is so desperately unlike the film. It's actually like a ghost possessing the car. And anyway, you probably read the book. I, I, the, the, yeah, he, he crushed that movie. And a few people, but yeah. Yeah. And, and you car. know,
1: once again, reverse, like the car getting crushed and coming back to life, that was, yeah. you know, playing in reverse. He's using that trick again.
2: Oh, it looks so good. It still looks good. I yeah. saw that movie like last year. I showed it to my kid. My kid was not impressed, but oh, well, she's. Stupid. Yeah,
1: I, I, I love it too. <laughs> and, uh you know, I, I can see that with um Stephen King's, you know, stuff getting more and more popular again. I can see them redoing that. I mean, at, almost every, Carpenter films been redone and in with Stephen King so hot, I imagine we're eventually going to get that one done again. But um, we'll always have the classic. So
2: absolutely. Yeah, I always thought John Carpenter and Stephen King were chocolate and peanut butter. Honestly, oh, so. me
1: too. Yeah. When uh, I remember, like I said, when I sort of discovered John Carpenter was going through his filmography, finding that he did a Stephen King story, I was, I was just like, Oh shit. Like I, why doesn't that's another one that a lot of people, I don't feel like talk about enough. Um, but it's, it's a great film too. And I'm hoping eventually I can find another podcaster who hasn't seen that, that I can introduce him to, but, um, I'm so glad to have you on here. Did you have any final thoughts on the fog?
2: Um, I'm glad that it finally filled in one of the last couple of, uh, John Carpenter movies that I some dumb reason had missed, um, and I I shouldn't have, and I'm mad at myself that I. So it'll be like Big Trouble in Little China. Um, it, it, I've now seen it like half a dozen times because after I saw it once, I'm like, oh well, this is just going to be on repeat. So now when this movie comes on and I see it, I'm going to leave it on because now I don't have to start halfway through. So I'm I'm absolutely thrilled that it's finally filled in the gaps. I'm I'm trying to think. There's only one other one that. I am missing and it's ah, Prince of Dar- well, Prince of darkness. I've seen, but it's been a whole, I mean, it's been decades, at least two decades. So I have almost forgotten it, but that one. And then the one I need to see is someone watching me. I've not seen that one. Other than that, I think I'm good. Oh, Dark Star, you educated me on that. So I've got about two or three left to fill in my Carpenter filmography, but um, he is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, especially in horror, and uh, he might be number one for me as well. You, when you, uh, when you showed me my choices, or at least, hey, is anybody like any of these? I latched onto those like you did. I'm like, oh, there's a Carpenter film on here. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm a giant fan of his. I, I can watch movies like they live, and I get that they're not the, the thing that I love the most about a lot of his films is they don't try to take themselves too seriously and they understand when they're campy and they lean into it if they have to and then they can be like the thing and there's not a dang campy frame in that thing and it's scary as hell but you can get they live and you can laugh and and just roll with it i i i think vampires is underrated i think a lot of stuff he does is underrated. i don't even hate village of the damned the way everybody did so i like him dan i'm i'm really glad you got to invite me on and and cover the fog because i'm i'm really I'm kicking my, it's just like with the other one. I, I'm kicking myself I didn't sooner, but now I'm glad I did. I'm glad I got to do this and, and digest and peel it back with another film lover. It's It's been fantastic. So uh, thanks a lot, man.
1: Well, I'm glad that you hadn't seen it because then we wouldn't, you wouldn't be on first time you would, you know, or we would have to watch another movie. So uh, like I said, I just love introducing movies to people. I'm so glad you liked it. Um, and again, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, we'll have to have you on another time, but, uh, oh, yeah, man. let people know where they can find the movie defenders and what you have coming up.
2: Oh, sure. Yep. So you can, uh, check us out. Our, our website is movie defenders.libson.com. L I B S Y N.com. We're on Facebook. We're on the PFPN.com. Our logos there. You can find everywhere. I, I would just suggest going to the PFPN.com. And just find uh, find that all of our stuff, Spotify. I mean, we're we're everywhere. Um, coming up, um, we have to see. We're either gonna. What do we have coming up? It, it depends if we have a Patreon selected movie or we're not going to this next show. But the last couple we did, um, we did Zack Snyder's Justice League. We did Top Gun at a request. Sometimes because of COVID, there has not been any new releases. So mm-hmm. we've had to just go back into the past. So like you said, you watched Idiocracy. Uh, we did Better Off Dead. We did Fitter Speed. Sometimes we just wanted a goofy movie to laugh at. Um, but um, we're tr- probably going to round out we're going to we're going to round out the John Wick trilogy. We've not rounded that out yet. Uh, my partner has not rounded out the Blade trilogy yet. And we need to finish that one because I think the third one gets a lot of hate that mm-hmm. it doesn't quite need. I, I know everyone like rags on Ryan Reynolds, but I'm like, that's what the guy does. So I don't know why you're angry. Uh, but <laughs> um, we are will do if if movies will start to come back, if 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 God willing, people get out of the way and let the theaters do what theaters do. Um, you know, I, I if Black Widow really does hit the theater, we'll do that. We'll lean into very, very popular film. And then another thing I'm very happy about is because of our contacts at, at Industrial Light and Magic and Lucasfilm and Lucasfilm Animation. Um, one of the production coordinators for the Bad Batch TV show, the, the Clone War cartoon series that's coming to Disney Plus, she's been working on it for over a year now, um, when that thing drops and, and gets finished with, she's going to come on and talk about it. That'll be fun. So we got some fun stuff coming up. It really kind of depends on what the movie industry does because we tend to lean into the popular film. So if they come back, we'll come back with newer stuff. If not, it's okay. We've got millions of older stuff to watch and do so. And, and you need to have me on more because my, my podcast partner <laughs> will barely watch a horror movie. I made him. I'm like, we're doing it. I don't care. It's like the most, po- and I know you didn't care for, Chapter two or whatever, it, it, it still was the most popular horror movie to hit in a really long time, Absolutely. like big blockbuster number one at the box office, crushing all all that stuff. So I was like, we're doing this. And he's like, OK, I was, <laughs> it drug him to that one. So I had to have your friends on to kind of help me because he's not a he's not a gore fan. He's not going to do hereditary with me or anything like that. But that, uh, I'll, I'll come on shows like this. I'll get my fix.
1: Well, it seems like maybe Godzilla vs. Kong is is giving a little of a boost to box office and and convincing theaters that um, people want to get back out and see movies. So I hope that, you know, that continues and shows studios. Yeah, we're out here. We're ready to see stuff. So So, I I got
2: really nervous when Black Widow said we're going to do Disney Plus as well. Now you're going to have to buy it. But I went, man, The you, someone's going to have to go. We're only releasing this in theaters. If you don't go to the theater, you can't see it because as long as they keep giving people choices, uh, man, I just want theaters back, man. My my hometown theater closed and it may never reopen. And I'm, I'm going to have to drive into Kansas City to go to a movie. And I really don't want to look forward to that day. So I'm really wanting them back, man. I'm hurting.
1: Yeah. I mean, as someone who books films at an independent theater, you know, we have we closed over a year ago and, you know, we're We're optimistic that, you know, this summer we can start doing um, some some new movies. But uh, yeah, it's been a weird year. And, you know, luckily we have we do have old movies to talk about, but it's always nice to get new perspectives. And and speaking of, if you are um, a fan of this show, you know, go check out the series finale of Is This Podcast Name Taken? Where uh, me and Brian Clark and the host Michael... Roland, talk about Godzilla versus Kong for over two hours. Those two guys are the biggest uh, Godzilla nerds I know. Really? And it was it was great. So um, I don't have to listen uh, to that. Yeah, that's my little plug on that episode. It's um, awesome.
2: I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm I, I'm fine with them. I like them. I actually thought Gareth Edwards uh, Godzilla from like 20. I don't know, like six, seven years ago, 14 yeah. was great um so i i, I don't mind a I, and i thought skull island was great so i don't mind a special effects spectacle film i i i think a lot of people forget to judge a film on what it's trying to be and not what it's not trying to be and godzilla vs kong is not trying to win an oscar for dialogue and mm-hmm. it's, so just just sit back and enjoy the eye candy so where can people
1: find your patreon because you've mentioned that several times and you want to oh, make yeah, sure to sorry, plug that
2: Yeah, no problem. Uh, It's just patreon.com slash movie defenders, all one word. In fact, that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's just at movie defenders slash movie defenders, and you'll you'll, you'll find where we're at.
1: And you guys also have a great Facebook community that I'm part of, uh, the Movie Defenders Facebook group. you guys are always keeping the topics, uh, new. I, sometimes I have to unfollow posts because I don't, uh, I'm not caught up on new episodes and stuff, but you guys do oh. a good job of not spoiling in the, po- like the opening post. So I kn- I can hide things before they're spoiled for me. But when I do see something, <laughs> I get excited to go in the group and, uh, you know, discuss it with you guys. You, you there's just a great group of people over there that, um, enjoy everything. And it's always healthy discussion.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, we're very proud. And and the listeners have done that. It's a we wanted to carve out a place on the Internet where you could talk movies and not get flamed for it. Not to, you know, hey, I like Jar Jar. You're not going to get I mean, there will be a joke or something. and, And we've got one of our most ardent supporters. He pays us some of the most money of anybody paying us. He cannot stand the DC movies. And I can't I live for them. And I'm a I'm a geek. I'm a comic geek. But when he does some ribbing, it's it's in good fun. He's not being shitty about it. And everybody feels like they can say what they want to say and they're not going to catch any crap. And um, it's it's we're real proud of that. I I, if you want to discuss movies of any kind. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a fun place to do it. So.
1: All right. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on to this episode, Scott. I'm so glad that we got to um, fix one of the one of the few John Carpenter holes you had in your filmography. And like I said, never feel embarrassed that you haven't seen something. We celebrate that on this show. And if you had seen it, I wouldn't have you on. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast.